I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom, living in his own personal burned-over district, Bionic. Are you? Yeah. Yeah, you do live in your own world. I'll, I'll vouch for that. Yeah, I, well, I mean, somebody's got to be there. Real estate's nice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to have you back for another week of the Future Quake Show. And, uh, Tom, would I be so bold as to say this could be a, a good favorite for our Futurians? Oh, the content I think out of the show? Yeah, I think... Everything about this this uh, this week, I think, is going to be great. Very informative. Mm-hmm. Very informative, and poses all sorts of interesting. Mr. Horowitz educational. was on the ball. Well, let's introduce our our guest. Our guest this week is Mitch Horowitz, uh, who is the uh, editor in chief of Tarcher Penguin Books in New York, and is also the author of the book Occult America: The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has all sorts of detailed information in this mm-hmm. book about some things that people know partially about, other things that probably most people have never heard of. Mm-hmm. A cult movement started right here in America, had a huge impact in society. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some cases, I think he said during the, the heyday of the spiritualism era, at least 10% of the public considered that their official religion. Yeah, I would imagine that there are more than that now. Could be, or even ones that maybe don't understand that what they're really doing is a, yes, basically like a, a religion. Yeah, it's basically a religion. They just yeah. don't acknowledge it as yeah. such. Yeah. But uh, certainly not Christianity as we think of it. Yeah. And our listeners, when they hear this information, particularly if they get a book, which we strongly recommend you get this book, mm-hmm. if you're a student of these matters, like many of our Futurians are, um, you'll think less and less of America as a Christian nation mm-hmm. when you find out the reality of the facts. I'd like to see Mitch Horowitz and Dave Barton go head to head. Yeah, that would be really, really interesting, and just put the hard facts on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a real treat. You're going to find some information from a very learned gentleman who um, was a really good guest, very informative for our show. I think mm-hmm. you'll really like this. So with no further ado, here's Mitch Horowitz, author of Occult America. We'll be back to wrap up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Interested in the real what's going on in America? Bionic. Well, you're going to learn tonight about that, Indeed. or at least what's been going on throughout mm-hmm. our history. We have a very unique guest this week with some very unique material that is going to be of particular interest to our Futurian listeners out there, uh, particularly ones who are students of uh, these kind of topics uh, in their own areas. We're talking this week uh, with a very prestigious author, Mitch Horowitz, uh, who is the author of a re- uh, fairly recent book out called Occult America, uh, The Secret History of How Mysticism Has Shaped Our Nation. And, uh, Mr. Horowitz, I just want to tell you, uh, uh, welcome to the Future Quake radio show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Well, it's just, just a pleasure to uh, to have you on. Uh, c- can you very quickly just tell us uh, what your current position is right now? I know it's very prestigious within the literary community. Well, you, you, you flatter me, but I'm the uh, editor-in-chief of Tarcher Penguin, which is the new age and metaphysical imprint of the Penguin Publishing Company. And my book was published by Random House. Uh, I made a point of going outside my own shop uh, to publish my book. Uh, and I write and speak very broadly on the history and impact of alternative spirituality. Okay. And you've you've made this, obviously, by judging your research I read in this book. It's obviously been a passion of yours for some time. 
Oh, many, many years. Ever since I was a, a little kid in the 1970s growing up in New York City, there was just a feeling that there was this other world that was that was just mm-hmm. available to us. I remember reading books on Bigfoot and flying saucers and ESP and uh, seeing my sister read the books of Carlos Castaneda. You turn on the television and there would be the Twilight Zone or the Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas show where they'd be hosting a astrologer or some kind of a robed guru. You know, there was just a feeling that there was this mm-hmm. alternative world that was out there. And uh, that uh, made an impression on me when I was very young, and it reemerged uh, as I grew older. Okay. Well, um, you know, you're an ideal person to be listening to the Future Quake show because you just basically read our list of uh, topics and other things. <laughs> uh, we're sort of a unique group within the evangelical community. There is a there's an underground even in Christian media that yes. covers these kind of topics with a very open-minded uh, view of understanding and uh, people who are serious about understanding what's going on. And they're going to be uh, much more informed after we're done here today. To, to begin our discussions, I would uh, you know, like to assert that uh, you know, many people in the evangelical and conservative communities in America uh, consider our country as a historical Christian nation. Mm-hmm. But after I read your book... Uh, which covers the history of the major occult movements that either began or developed of somehow their own variety here in America, uh, it is yet another convincing piece of data that makes me think that is a very hard case to make. Yeah. That uh, we, we are, by definition, a Christian nation. Would you comment on that assertion and how you could best quantify in summary of the extent of influence in, in general that uh, these occult movements have had on American life and maybe just a few examples? Well, you know, it's a question that I think about all the time because very frequently one will hear America described as as a Christian nation. And um, I think actually we're we're hearing that more and more nowadays. And in some respects, of course, it's true in the sense that um, the religious and ethical ideals that you find in um, among some of the figures who were considered our founders are Christian, and I think civically and ethically, the best of what we are um, uh, can be described as 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 Judeo-Christian in terms of our ethical culture. But the fact is, America has also been a great laboratory for religious experiment, going way back to the colonial days. Um, I mean, really, literally going back to the 1600s, when this was a very sparsely populated agrarian nation uh, filled with settlers and Native Americans. There were mystical movements that were flowing from Europe to America uh, really quite early on um, in the existence of the American colonies. We've always been a country that has made room for religious experiment, religious questioning. Uh, to describe America a Christian nation is to look at America with one eye closed. It's not that I dispute uh, that that we, we have Christian roots as a nation and that ethically and civically um, some of our identity uh, has been defined by Christian ethics, but that's only part of the picture. The, 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 the truth of America is that we've been a great laboratory for religious experiment going back to the colonial days, and to miss that part of our history is to miss really part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as a Christian myself... Um, I would assert that uh, if you try to broad brush uh, our history, 
someone used the term disnification of our history uh, on our yeah. show. Uh, in looking at it purely through that lens, you're going to miss out not only a lot of the history of America, but what made America what it is today, for better or for worse. Well, what about Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yep. his wonderful appeal for the Bible. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but uh, you know, this is important for people, even of the Christian faith, to understand uh, that they're not getting the full picture when they have such a simplistic view of our of our history and culture. Um, and, and, you know, I would add that it's it's very difficult to define individuals in one strict way as much as it is to define a nation in one strict way. Um, you know, let's look at a contemporary figure, for example, Martin Luther King. You know, King was one of the greatest Christian ethical figures of his generation, uh, probably one of the greatest Christian ethical figures this country has ever produced. Uh, he attended a traditional seminary. He was a Baptist minister, and he would be the first to say that the impetus behind his drive for um, universal equality uh, was based in the Gospels. But King would also point out that his ethic of nonviolence came from the philosophy of an orthodox Hindu, Mohandas Gandhi. King had um, a um, photograph of Gandhi hanging above the dining room table in his household. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak with King's daughter, Yolanda King, before she died several years ago, and she had vivid memories of this sort of what looked to her as this strange robed man hanging in a photograph above their dining room table from when she was very young. And it was only as she got older that she realized the extent of Gandhi's influence on King. So here you have King, who was a Christian, but who was taking his philosophy of nonviolence from Mohandas Gandhi. So you can't just find somebody as a as a kind of a uh, a, a, a piece of wood that's either, you know, um, a birch or pine. It just doesn't work that way. We're more mm -hmm. complicated than that. And as we'll talk about later in the program, Gandhi was inspired as a young man by an occult organization that sprang up in this country called the Theosophical Society. So you have all these different influences that go into a person and that go into a country. Yeah, you stole my thunder there. I was going to make that connection back that that here we have Gandhi coming back being influenced by an American occult religion. You know, one of the things I guess we need to clarify, since since it's in the title of your book, um, in, in you defining the scope of what made your definition to cover an occult America, I guess we have to clearly know a definition, or at least a working definition, of, of what you mean by occult. Can you explain what you classified that way to, you know, look at further? Sure thing. You know, I... I I actually, I, I use words like occult or new age very frequently, and, and to some people, um, those words I realize are, are a turnoff and there are all kinds of negative associations with them. But that doesn't actually reflect the reality of things as I see it. So I, I try to reclaim these words in terms of what they, they really ought to mean to us. Occult comes from the Latin word occultus, which means hidden or secret. It's, it's just a way of talking about a spiritual outlook that has to do with the belief in a hidden or an unseen world that exists side by side, uh, right along our own. And the, the, the classical occult belief is that this hidden world or this unseen dimension um, can, be, can be reached, can be tapped into by ordinary people uh, who are seeking insight about themselves, who maybe are seeking some sort of knowledge about the future or practical help with problems that they're experiencing in day-to-day -day life. The occult belief system is that this invisible world, whether you call it the afterworld or the spirit world or the heavens or whatever terminology you use, is, 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 is 
as real and as palpable a presence as our own, and its powers can be felt upon us and through us. Now, some people who harbor that belief also consider themselves traditional Christians. Very often, when occult practices are pursued outside of a, of a church or a congregation, they're sometimes misunderstood as being um, satanic or dark or evil. And, and one of the things I've tried to show in my book is that none of that has, has, has actually been the case throughout much of Western history. You have lots of figures in the history of this country who are interested in things from spirit channeling to seances to clairvoyance to things like astrology and divination, um, whose lives in many ways were very defined by Christian ethics, but they had a spiritual search that took them to unusual places. And, and, mm-hmm. and these pursuits are what we usually call the occult. In fact, uh, it's interesting, much of the public may have thought of themselves, these people, as purely being Christians and not knowing the full extent of what they were pursuing. Mm-hmm. But we also have a large part of the public that has always had a fascination with the occult, including a lot of people who sit in church pews every Sunday morning, whether it's their horoscopes or other kind of things like this, that it has been an American tradition to have a fascination with the occult. Absolutely. And the fact, the fact that we have a very free people makes them to be almost very independent in their thinking religiously and otherwise, where they tend to do a lot more experimentation than I assume people at other places. That's right. And, and they also participate in things that they might not think of as being a cult, but that actually do have roots in an American mystical or in a cult tradition. And the prime example of that is the positive thinking movement. You know, nowadays, uh, we accept it as an article of faith that having a positive outlook on life, having a positive attitude, will in some greater or lesser measure um, bring you good things. And that is the bedrock message of some of the most popular um, uh, evangelical media ministries that, that mm-hmm. exist in the nation today, particularly Joel Osteen's ministry. Every right. Sunday morning, millions of people watch Joel Osteen giving a sermon, essentially on the benefits of positive thinking. It seems so natural. It seems so American. It feels like that philosophy and that idea is just common sense. It's always been with us. But one of the things I try to do in my book is, is trace back the roots, the bloodline of that movement. And what you really find is that this whole idea that positive or motivational thinking can help create or shape outcomes was actually a very mystical and occult idea that was being worked with uh, by some people in New England, roughly starting in the 1830s and the 1840s, who were part of something called the mental healing movement. Uh, and, and their core belief was that the mind really shapes our physical well-being. That eventually morphed into the religion known as Christian science, but it branched off into many, many different directions under many, many different names. And eventually it emerged as a very mainstream American philosophy that we call the power of positive thinking. Uh, that was the name of a best-selling book in the 1950s that was written by a conservative Methodist minister, uh, the Reverend Norman Vincent Peale. Peale, as I, as I go through in my book, really was standing on the shoulders of the mystical and occult uh, figures from the mental healing movement who were experimenting with some very unusual philosophies, some of which they were deriving from Europe, some of which were homegrown, and they were the ones back in the mid-19th century who came up with this idea that the mind has some creative, magical power. So Norman Vincent Peale or Joel Osteen found a way of taking that concept and 
remaking it in a language with which mm-hmm. the church going public was comfortable. But you also have folks who, who, who took that concept and made it into, say, the recent book and movie, The Secret, which is, which is couched in more of a mystical or magical language. All of this stems uh, from the roots of, of American occult tradition. So folks who attend um, very mainstream evangelical churches who are very familiar with the motivational thinking, the positive thinking message, may not realize that a part of what they're imbibing does come out of, a, of an American mystical tradition. And, and I think that message is is one of the most useful parts of your book uh, for our audience, mm-hmm. is to be able to actually pick up and grasp that. Um, in fact, I would think it's very much akin to how during the history of the church during the, the, the Roman Catholic age from the time of Constantine uh, to the Reformation, how as the church spread, they would also often adopt a lot of pagan uh, yeah. or occult belief system, incorporate them in the church, Christianize them, give them some Christian terms, and suddenly put their blessing on them. You mean like a Christmas tree? Well, a lot of things, a lot of our <laughs> holidays and things. It's really no different than that, than taking what I understand to be this other path to go through the mind, to find this hidden power, to use it, and then go back and Christianize it later, go hunt back for the Bible for a few verses to justify a power that came through another door. Now, in the old days, uh, you know, the, the Reformation guys and others would have looked at this and, and made point that this would be part of what they called the Great Whore Babylon, as Revelation 17, where, mm-hmm. you, where you have groups of the church that actually are a mask uh, of a more occult underpinning uh, mm-hmm. that's underneath it. And uh, we have a very interesting revival now that's going on, but America's played a very important role. Obviously, uh, Manly P. Hall and others, have, Blavatsky and others have acknowledged America is a linchpin. Uh, in the future age of occultism and its effect on the world, uh, we may keep saying the mantra, we're a Christian nation all the time. Uh, meanwhile, it's the main launching pad or staging area of, of earth-shaking world events, I believe. You know, you've pointed this out indirectly, but can you mention in some other ways how the, uh, the uh, occult movement in America differed from how it was practiced in the old world in Europe? And Absolutely. That, that, that's, that's a really key point, um, uh, and 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 um, that really points up America's role in recent religious history. The occult in Europe uh, was very often seen as uh, an exclusive practice. People would form into secret lodges with different initiations and rites. Um, you could sometimes see this through the practice of Freemasonry in Europe. Uh, you could sometimes see it through... Uh, various cult organizations that sprang up in Europe in the late 19th century. There was a big revival that started to spread through Europe and, and through the United States in the in the late 19th century. Um, but the attitude was entirely different here in America. Occult figures in America, they wanted to evangelize the occult, if I can use that term. They wanted to spread these ideas, and positive thinking is a great example, as things that could bring practical help uh, to ordinary men and women who were struggling with, with the problems of daily life. So very early on in this country, for example, you had a movement uh, called spiritualism that, was, that started to emerge in the late 1840s. And spiritualism involved seances and spirit raps and talking to the dead. But what's often misunderstood about spiritualism is that it, it, its popularity grew in this country, and it, and it did become wildly popular, um, based on the idea that ordinary men and women 
could reach the beyond, pierce the veil, reach the other world, uh, that, 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 that you didn't need a priest or an intermediary or some robed figure uh, to serve as your guide to the beyond, but that the average person could do it. And this was a very, very American impulse, the concept that um, an ordinary person could walk in the footsteps of a biblical prophet uh, it might seem it might seem like heresy to some people, but it really came out of this belief that this new country was possessed of some sort of spiritual destiny. Sometimes people would refer to, to the United States as the American Israel. It was believed that this was a kind of a promised land where ordinary people could come and live out a uniquely close relationship with God. So these supernatural movements sometimes grew out of that. And the idea of the spiritualist movement or the mental healing movement or the positive thinking movement was that this other world could be tapped by ordinary people. That wasn't the attitude in Europe. The attitude in Europe was that these were secret teachings that were placed up on some kind of a mountaintop and you needed to go through some kind of secret lodge or initiatory rank or ritual in order to get to them. The American ideal was that this stuff was available uh, to everyday folks uh, throughout modern life. And that really came to be, in a certain sense, uh, the American religion, this idea that, that the, the other world, the hidden world, was not far away, but invisible help was available to me right here and right now uh, for healing purposes, for therapeutic purposes, for practical answers, you know, the whole self-help ethic that, 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 that just traverses our religious culture from the New Age to the, um, to the modern evangelical movement, that whole self-help ethic to a degree came out of mystical and occult subcultures in this country. So there was a certain idealism that these secret teachings didn't need to be so secret anymore, but that they could be available mm -hmm. to people in every walk of life. That was America's very original twist on occult philosophy. Well, you know, what I hear, Mitch, is that um, it, 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 the difference in our social cultures, our, our, our whole societal understanding of philosophy is just extended into the spiritual realm. We're, we're in old Europe, you have very much a class system of people who, um, you know, believe in social order and class standing and very limited, restricted access to education and in other parts of society, and they're just extended into the spirit realm is limiting the access of certain individuals to this hidden knowledge, whereas in America they believe in this very egalitarian society where everyone can do whatever they want to do and be whatever they want to be, and they've extended that in the spiritual world of taking all of these supposed secret information and just making it available to all. Does, does it really reflect our whole social view itself? Yeah, I, I, I think that actually hits on something very important. You know, you know part of what popularized the occult in this country in the 19th century is that some of its practitioners came from these very ordinary backgrounds in which Americans could see themselves. Um, I mentioned earlier the movement of spiritualism, which, which grew up in this country in the late 1840s. Now, spiritualism uh, involved seances and talking to the dead and uh, hearing spirit raps and things. That movement began in upstate New York uh, in the winter of 1848 when these two young teenage girls living in a, a very uh, ordinary Methodist household in a log cabin, began to tell their parents that they were able to talk to the dead. Mm -hmm. right. And they claimed that they were hearing these 
noises and bangs and raps throughout their cabin, and that these noises were communiques from from the spirit land. And lots of people descended upon this little log cabin, newspaper editors and judges and clergymen, and people like the newspaper editor Horace Greeley, for example, said that he felt these young girls were telling the truth. And it's, it's difficult for people to understand today why these movements became so popular. And there were, there were a number of reasons why, but one of them that you really just hit upon was the fact that they were the work of very ordinary people, and Americans were hugely aroused with the idea that if two young teenage girls could communicate with the afterworld, then it stood to reason that we all could. And you saw this pattern repeating itself again and again. There was a willingness to believe. In fact, there was even a passion to believe that ordinary, everyday folks uh, could reach the afterworld. It was almost like people were so aroused and excited by the Protestant experience, which told them that they could have their own personal relationship with God without any intermediaries, that they began in a certain way to riff off of that and feel that if they could have a direct relationship with God, maybe they could prophesize as well. Maybe they could communicate as well with with the divine or with, with some aspect of the spirit world as they saw it. So Americans were passionate to believe that the doors of the unknown were open to, to everyday, ordinary people. It, it was a very American attitude, and, and still is in many respects. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, both eyes opened. Bionic. Is that right? Yeah. He made a, he made a very interesting, um, oh. interesting allusion. He said, looking at, looking at uh, America as a Christian nation is like looking at it with one eye covered. Yeah. You know, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Which has another interesting uh, connotation. Occultism, yep. Yeah, because they have the one eye covered kind of thing. Yep. Which I still need to look into more. Mm -hmm. Um, Mr. Horowitz, I think consistently over the course of the interview this week, will be uh, very, very informative. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg of the information, I think, that he knows and it's in the book. And some of this was precipitated. We, I've seen this book pop up at different places where I get my news. Mm-hmm. But we did a story recently, talked about how Ronald Reagan would quote Manly P. Hall mm-hmm. and, and, and his you know, stories. Ronald Reagan saw an alien spacecraft and was fascinated by him. Ronald Reagan? Mm-hmm. I know Carter did. Yeah, back when, he was, uh, back when he was governor of California, Reagan saw a spacecraft flying around Bakersfield. Huh. And um, Let's, he... Huh, okay. that's, I mean, that's a short story. Well, so did Dennis Kucinich. He saw one at... Uh, flew over, what's your name's house? Yeah, Shirley MacLaine's house. Yeah. yeah, he said that in one of the debates. Yeah. But uh, this week, I hope you're able to see how so many movements, political movements in our country, uh, social movements, were originated by people from an occult tradition. Sure. And um, we tend to look at Europe as this post-Christian culture, you know, where... Where Christianity is a minority, yeah. but we've had a significant kind non-Christian of, of Christianity yeah. with a whole lot of occultism. Well, we've had a, a significant non-Christian influence in our con- mm-hmm. country, as this show will attest. Mm-hmm. Somebody else can attest, as Mervyn can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. 
Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. we got to go. Let's get out. Come back tomorrow for our next segment with, with Mitch Horwitz. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, ready for round two, Bionic. Yes, of a fascinating discussion with our guest this week. Uh, for the first time on our show, we have had uh, Mitch Horowitz, who is the editor-in-chief of Tar- Targer uh, Penguin Books uh, and is the author of a book, Occult America, uh, How Mysticism, sh- Mysticism Shaped Our uh, Country. And... Uh, I think so far we've already had fascinating information. Sometimes it, it mm-hmm. takes a while for us to, uh, no, we excuse were, me, how we, mysticism shaped our nation. Yeah. Apology. We were like right out of the gate doing some cool stuff. With some fasc- fascinating info and uh, one revelation leads to ten. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners, if you get this book and read it, suddenly light bulbs will go on on a lot of things. Some information you'll know about some people, but not maybe as much. Yeah. And other things you'll think, oh, I've never heard anything about this, if you're like me. Yeah. But uh, I think there's much more Mitch probably still has left to write mm-hmm. and do that, you know, is outside the scope yeah, of this book. It seems book. to me like this book just was like the beginning of America to like 1960. Right, right, all right. And yeah. he talks about it that way. In fact, you'll hear that later. Uh, no further ado, though, here's Mitch Horowitz uh, talking about uh, the, the occult legacy of our country, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quick. You know, this leads to another question, though, because, uh, you know, religious Christian practice has obviously been a, been a prevailing influence in our culture. And, and, you know, you show in your book how people could have this coexistence of Christian standing and also pursuing these occult activities. And, and in generations past, um, they were very big on their Bible study, reading their yep. Bible every day. In fact, there were few other entertainments than reading your Bible every night yep. by, by lantern or whatever. And so they, they heard this preached. And, and if they study the Bible in, in depth, there are clear admonitions against many of these practices, like, for example, communicating with the dead. It's clearly yep. taught against in Scripture, and many, not all, but many of these practices are expressly forbidden. How did they rationalize that, that very clear teaching in Scripture and the fact that they felt like they were Christians in good standing by, by uh, performing these things? That's a, that's a wonderful question, and I think that was a tremendous conflict in the lives of many occult figures in this country. I think that conflict actually showed up most in the life of probably the most famous occult figure of the 20th century, a man named Edgar Cayce, uh, mm-hmm. who, who, who died um, just as World War II was winding to a close. Cayce was a devout Christian. He was a Disciples of Christ Sunday school teacher. Uh, he he grew up in what is sometimes considered the Bible Belt. He was raised in rural Kentucky, lived most of his life in the South, and um, spent a good portion of his career in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, Casey was a devout Bible reader. Uh, he, he read through Scripture in full uh, each year of his life. And, 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 and yet, early on, as a young man, he developed a reputation as a medical clairvoyant. Casey 
was known for being able to go into these trance states. And from these trance states, he would diagnose and prescribe cures for people's illnesses. And eventually, just droves of people uh, came to him for these trance readings, and they claimed that when no one else could help them, Casey was able to. So he began to burst onto the national scene in the early uh, 1900s. In the 1920s, Casey began to expand these psychical readings. He went beyond medicine, and he started to talk about astrology and reincarnation and people having past lives. Uh, he made predictions and prophecies. And when Casey would come out of these trance states, he was very often uncomfortable with some of the material that had channeled through him while he was in these trance states. This was a Bible-reading man. He wasn't interested personally in astrology or in reincarnation or uh, in giving people past life readings and things like that. It wasn't part of the Christian ethics that Casey grew up with. But I think ultimately he felt that as long as his readings and that the advice that came through them uh, was appropriately in line with the ethics of the Gospels, that it was for the good. But it was a conflict. It was a question that Casey lived with for most of his life. So that, too, is very much a part of the American experience, trying to understand um, how to be a, a, a Bible-believing Christian, but also, as in the case with, with Edgar Casey and with some of the other figures I write about, feeling that, 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 that truth was somehow being dispensed through these supernatural means. It's a, it's a difficult question. It was a confounding question for some of these figures. And, and I think that still happens today. I think that same kind of scenario. I'll give one example of, of Edgar Casey. Uh, you know, this teaching uh, that he received from this, I think he called the source, um, yes. of, of reincarnation. Yes. Now, unless you are far into the New Age or Gnostic Christianity, uh, there's no way you can really harmonize a, a reincarnation with a traditional reading of the Bible. You know, it says, is appointed a man once to die and then the judgment. And uh, it's very hard to rationalize the two unless you, you go very esoteric in yep. your approach. And um, uh, I gave a talk uh, a couple of years ago at a United Nations conference on religion and spirituality, which was mostly people from the New Age community, yep. uh, more occult traditions uh, that were there. And uh, I had pointed out in Scripture, just in our dialogue, it was more of an academic kind of discussion, that there was teachings in the Old Testament that God would even send uh, prophets that gave uh, that would do signs and wonders, but they would also give false teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a test of the people to see if they mm -hmm. would stand true to the law, uh, even though you could be seduced by the signs and wonders. So, you know, there's these warnings that were in Scripture. And I know Edgar Casey was a gentleman who, as I understand, read the Bible every year, read it backwards yeah. and forwards, must have yeah. read those passages, but yet he found access to this power that was very difficult to harmonize with the reading of it. And obviously, if the power just wasn't a power in the spirit world to be clairvoyant, to be able to see how to have healings and things like this in the future, but there was a power over the people. Uh, people really responded, uh, as far as Edgar Casey goes. As I understand, even presidents came to get readings from him, correct? Well, there were some rumors to that effect. Uh, I, I looked into the question of whether... Casey had given a clairvoyant reading to Woodrow Wilson, which is the, the rumor that makes the rounds, and I think probably that did not happen. Um, that's, that's more on the fanciful side, but, but he certainly did attract people from all walks of life, and you know, what, for me, one of the 
wonderful and remarkable aspects of Casey's life is that he never used his abilities wherever they came from uh, for personal enrichment. You know, I, I, I've studied a lot of the correspondence that Casey had with people. There's a, a, a and, and, and the existing records and archives of Casey's life. He would very often give readings to people for free. Uh, mm-hmm. He would, he would very frequently send people back to scripture to help understand their readings. Um, he was, he would, within his readings, his clairvoyant readings, he would very frequently quote from scripture. In fact, he often delivered his readings in the idiom of the King James Bible. They can be difficult to understand sometimes because Casey is speaking in this mm-hmm. kind of King James idiom that, that's not really familiar to us today. And again, it, it is a big question because I think, you know, as you've pointed out, he was a Bible reading man, a Sunday school teacher. He certainly would have encountered those passages that you reference. And, and he did voice discomfort. He, he was uncomfortable when the concept of reincarnation started to come through his readings. But he eventually harmonized it because he, you know, he felt that this information, um, was, it seemed to him, to track, to line up um, with the ethics of the Gospels, and that it was urging people on to um, ideals of Christian love, personal responsibility, uh, the quest for salvation, things that he felt uh, were borne out by Scripture. So he he lived with the conflict. That That's essentially mm-hmm. the story of, of, of Edgar Casey's life. Well, you know, as it appears, he and it, many of the other people you talk about in your book... Um, sort of uh, put their own personal experience above things like the Bible uh, and took that experience as a main part of what they interpreted reality to be and then put the Bible within the context of their experience. And I think that's very common even within parts of the Christian community today. Mm -hmm. We have a very large experiential segment of the Christian culture that seeks these kind of metaphysical experiences or signs and wonders yep. and then tries to put a Christian, uh, you know, spin uh, on yep. what they've experienced, whether it is or not. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but, but when you, when you, when you were explaining these kind of things, I couldn't help but picture some of the, even some of the teachers I've heard on cable TV, like TBN and places like that. And I'm not pointing individuals out, but it sounds very, very similar uh, yeah. where certain signs and wonders are promoted uh, and then, again, couched in a certain context to be within people's comfort zone uh, of, of what was being taught. Um, and, and by the way, I would add to that, I, I think that's a very fair observation. I think that's a very fair criticism. And, you know, I, I would say myself, as, as somebody who probably um, uh, is part of the New Age community, travels in New Age circles, there is a constant pitfall that we have um, in this society today that we want to take our ideas and we like we like to take contemporary ideas and cast them backwards as if they are mm-hmm. affirmed by scripture or affirmed by ancient philosophy and it's a it's um it's a pitfall that i try to warn people against because you know for example if somebody is part of the positive thinking movement which is sometimes called new thought that's one of of many names that's mm-hmm. used to describe that philosophy people will sometimes seize upon um a biblical proverb like um as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, and say that that proverb supports their idea that the mind can outpicture itself into concrete events. But if you go back to Scripture, at least in my reading, it seems to me that 
proverb is actually an admonition against uh, hypocrisy, and yet mm-hmm. it's cited all the time. <laughs> so there's this constant pitfall that we have uh, to embrace ideas and then start to project them backwards and say, oh, look, you know, you could find this in Scripture. So that, that's, right. a, that's an important criticism, I think. Well, that's not just a New Age uh, trend. The, the Christian church itself has made that into an art form. Uh, human nature, I think. And I speak that as a member of that group. They have taken the uh, the latest new whiz-bang thing that an individual can make their name on and then, like you said, projected it backwards uh, to give some kind of context. And people swallow it uh, all the time. Uh, Can you list some of the prominent occult movements that originated from an area in New York, this valley area called the Burned Over District? I found this fascinating. And uh, ex- explain how important it's been to the American occult scene. And if you have any ideas on any prehistory of that area, from the Indians sure. or elsewhere, that may sure. give some kind of spiritual justification on... Because we believe in the spirit world. We believe in the paranormal powers, uh, mm-hmm. as we understand them here. Anything that maybe occurred there that could justify an atmosphere that created so much occult-related activity. Sure. You know, I mean, the Burned Over District of upstate New York is a is a section of New York State right in the center of the state that runs between the city of um, Albany uh, in the east and the city of Buffalo in the west. And in the early uh, 19th century, this place started to get called the Burned Over District because it was considered burned over by the fires of the spirit. And it's just one of the most mysterious places in this country because for about a generation it produced so many different religious movements. It was this sparsely populated farming community and it, and it remains so today, but it produced um, the religions of Mormonism, uh, Seventh-day Adventism, the spiritualist movement, the women's rights movement, uh, all the various um, utopian experiments, the experiments with what you might call biblical communism that went on in America in the early 19th century. People formed voluntarily into communes and such and were, were trying to uh, uh, live out what they felt was some sort of uh, uh, ideal biblical communal existence. That all went on in the burned over district. Um, different things like uh, the practice of mesmerism or what we today call hypnotism uh, became popular in the burned over district. It was just this unbelievable springboard uh, for different religious and political ideas. And I, I kept asking myself as I was working on the book, why? You know, why was this narrow strip of land in upstate New York? You go there today, and it, it's still actually a, a, mostly a, a, a community of farmland, some sprawl, but, but mostly farmland. Why was this place so significant? And it's, it's, it's very interesting. What happened is... Um, I mean, there are two different strands of thought that can go into this. You mentioned some of the prehistory of the area, which I'll touch upon in a moment. But in terms of um, how the area became populated by by settlers, um, it had been home um, to the Iroquois nation. The Iroquois um, uh, made a decision to uh, ally itself for various reasons with the British during the War of Independence. That was a bad decision. The War of Independence ended, and, and the new American government had the pretext that it was looking for to push the Iroquois off that land, which it did, and it opened that land to settlement um, after the War of Independence. So uh, folks from New England began to flow into central New York State 
um, starting in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. And it became known as uh, a kind of a psychic highway, is the phrase that one historian used, because you had all these New Englanders flowing down into New York State, uh, interested in establishing farms or businesses, or just using the area as kind of a great highway to travel uh, westward to settle the, the rest of the nation. And many of these folks had, had left behind uh, the churches and the congregations of their childhood. Um, they, were, they were relatively liberal folks. They were interested in new ideas, and they attracted all kinds of itinerant uh, ministers who would hold tent revival meetings and crisscross throughout the region. And the region just became this, this hotbed of religious activity. People would speak in tongues and talk about communicating with angels, and they would dance in thrall to the Holy Spirit. I mean, the whole region at times could just religiously seem to be on fire, hence the name the Burned Over District. Uh, now, there was something else that was kind of interesting in the history of the Burned Over District. There's a big, uh, there's a very rich folklore in the area, and the folklore of that area holds that it had at one time been occupied by a very ancient tribe, uh, a tribe even older than the oldest uh, uh, Native American tribes. And some people said, according to the folklore, that this was a, perhaps a lost tribe of Israel that had been wiped out in a confrontation with the Native Americans. That very line of thought later reemerged in Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. Now, you could look at the Book of Mormon as confirming the folklore. You could look at the Book of Mormon as, as, as coming from the folklore. That's a, a whole different discussion. But the fact is, that folklore was widely talked about and discussed. There are documents from the New York State Historical Society that has, um, uh, in the 18-teens, New York's governor is giving a, a speech to the New York State Historical Society, and he's very freely referencing this folklore. It was a serious topic of discussion. Joseph Smith, obviously, who grew up in the area, um, his parents were typical New Englanders. They flowed from, from Vermont down to the Burned Over District seeking um, inexpensive lands and a way to get a start in farming. He took in this, 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 this material, this lore, and, and again, you find it very fully fleshed out in his Book of Mormon. So, so, you know, there are different ways to look at this. If you're a believing Mormon, you could say, well, look, our scripture... Uh, actually confirms some of the things that, 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 that were being talked about by archaeologists and folklorists in the area. Um, so that's one aspect of the Burned Over District's history. But another aspect is the fact that, you know, uh, 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 Americans, when they're on the move, when they're on the move, uh, if you look at population currents in this country, you will see new religions or new denominations or congregations springing up. Everybody wonders, gee, you know, why has California become such a such a hotbed of, of of the new age and of all kinds of religious experiment and religious trends. You know, just 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 look at migration patterns. Look at migration patterns. You know, folks begin to flow into California uh uh after the first gold rush um, following the, the, the Civil War and then in the early nineteen hundreds around the time of uh the first world war there's a big economic boom in, 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 in California. Folks begin to flow out to the West Coast there are the new religions. Wherever Americans start to move in population flows, whether it's through upstate New York, whether it's through California, uh, other regions of the country, that's where you'll find the new religions. And, and the Burned Over District uh, was the California of the early 19th century. There has never been anything like it. It's this relatively small mm. place, and so much went on there. It's mm. just astonishing.
You know, they may have their folklore, but of course we can always know that they were likely Nephilim that were there beforehand, <laughs> teaching their ancient teachings that left after the tower. We are a little bit more educated now. We know that. Sure, sounds like it all always comes back to Nephilim. Sounds like Nephilim. Yeah, we yeah. we need to explain that Nephilim, usually. Nephilim Rockefeller. Either uh, the word Nephilim or David Rockefeller has to come up at every future quake. It's is that a fact? This, is it's yeah. a necessity. We, we've hit that requisite. <laughs> yeah, we hit them both, so we're we can go on. We can know. check that box. You know, I'll, I'll mention one other interesting thing about the burned over. District. And it's funny, um, there was a, um, the Seneca Indians uh, um, were, were popular in the Burned Over District, and they had a, a leader named uh, uh, Red Jacket um, in the 19th century, and, and uh, archaeologists, uh, anthropologists began to record that they were seeing Red Jacket and other Seneca Indian leaders wearing what looked like Freemasonic medals, medals with a square and compass on it. And in fact, um, there was an academic monograph produced by the New York State Museum in the early 1900s um, called uh, Metallic Ornaments Among Native Americans. And it, it, it very forthrightly documents and, and provides drawings of these Freemasonic medals that were being worn by, by Red Jacket and, and some of the Seneca Indians. And um, so this, this theory began to emerge in some circles that there was this ancient esoteric form of Freemasonry that was being practiced by the Seneca. Now, I don't know where the Seneca Indians got these Freemasonic medals, but Freemasonry was a force in the Burned Over District and in this country, and they, they very probably came in contact with it, and uh, uh, there was some kind of influence there. I don't know that, that, that it stands up to scrutiny that there were any esoteric Freemasonic lodges among the Seneca, but this was a phenomenon that was observed, and... Uh, uh, just another interesting wrinkle of life hmm. in the Burned Over District. Now, when the first settlers met the Seneca, did they notice the Seneca running on little teeny tiny motorcycles and wearing fezes? Yeah. I haven't read that. <laughs> because that would be another giveaway, too, if that they was, had those traits. Yeah. You know, actually, I'll tell you something. It's funny. You can't make a reference without it tripping something. Yeah. You're, of course, referring to the Shriners, and, and the Shriner tradition within Freemasonry uh, uh, is chiefly a charitable tradition today, but it was started by a group of New York businessmen in the late 19th century, and they did have a really strong influence in um, uh, Islam and in uh, um, uh, Sufism, or what is sometimes considered the mystical wing of Islam. Americans were fascinated with Islam in the 19th century because they considered mm -hmm. it this far eastern mystery religion. They didn't really know anything about it, but the symbols of Islam, the fezes and the scimitars mm -hmm. and the um, images of the um, uh, the moon and stars seemed very mystical, and 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 the folks who started the Shriners movement um, were, were were actually pretty serious people who who were very interested in um, Islamic mysticism. And then later on, the Shriners movement became uh, pretty exclusively a, a, a charitable movement, which is which is what it is today. Well, you know um, <clears throat> that uh, I've often found it interesting that here in the, in the modern era, the the evangelical Christian culture in America has been totally mortified by what they call Islamofascism and the danger of uh, Islam, particularly on our own shores and what it might do to them. But they've never really thought about the fact that probably the Shriners have more scimitars under their beds than most most of the Islamic people here. If there's any kind of Islamic th uh, horde threat, it's probably from the Shriners itself. Yeah, it's interesting. So they've got to, more of those weapons. It's very interesting to drive around uh, along those lines. One thing I saw recently was there was, a, I guess, some type of a Masonic meeting or something going mm -hmm. on here in Nashville. I drove by the Major Lodge, and uh, there were a bunch of cars with uh, bumper like bumper plates that said Wahhabi 
I thought that was pretty huh. wild. Very. Oh, you know, that that was part of a Shriner uh, uh, gathering. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I assume it was Shriners. It was at a Masonic Hall, and a bunch of the cars in the parking mm-hmm. lot had uh, either stickers or like a license plate ring that said Wahhabi. Which Interesting. Is, of course, course of you know from the saudi Muslim arabian thing. yeah uh, yeah, yeah yeah you yeah. know it's funny i mean both um there were the early black nationalist movement in this country and the early shriner movement um in the late 19th century early 20th century they thought of islam as being this esoteric mystery religion from the east you know everything that was from the east for a certain right. period of time had this mysterious vogue in america so the star and crescent and the scimitar and the fez you know these these were these were these were uh, mystery symbols, you know, for 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 the Shriners movement and and others, uh, and uh, you know, I would say that the Shriners movement um, does run just a tremendous and, and wonderful network of free uh, children's hospitals right. in this in this country today. I'm not a Freemason, um, but um, the, the charitable work they do is is really outstanding, and and the free hospitals that they run for kids are are just um, uh, without comparison. So it, it's 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 a great charity. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, right. I didn't mean, didn't mean to pick on them, but uh, uh, I did a little bit. But that's okay. <laughs> uh, can you explain just to give an example of one of the long litany of people that you mention in your book? It's one fascinating character after the other, and I just can't impress upon our listeners more that they need to get your book for their own education. But it is a a fascinating page turner. But one of the early characters in the early days of of our country was a gentleman by the name of Andrew Jackson Davis. Yeah. A a mystic. Can you can you just give very quickly some of the general teachings of him as an example? And and there was even a connection to a George Bush in his life, I believe. That's for sure. That's right. Uh, Andrew Jackson Davis is America's forgotten mystic. He was just a remarkable figure. Um, who lived in uh, the Hudson Valley region of, of New York State, just a little ways south of the burned-over district. Um, Davis uh, grew up in a poor household in the mid-19th century, and he got interested in a practice called mesmerism, or what we today call hypnotism. And he discovered that when he went into one of these mesmeric or hypnotic trances, he had these visions of visiting uh, the afterworld, uh, visiting different realms and dimensions, visiting other planets. And he would come out of these trances and he would write these vast metaphysical works where he would um, map out a whole cosmic and occult philosophy. The remarkable thing about Davis, as, as we were discussing earlier, is that he came from this very ordinary background, grew up in a poor household, was a cobbler's apprentice, barely educated, you know, even by the standards of the day. And yet, he would come out of these trance states and he would produce these massive um, metaphysical, uh, uh, philosophical, cosmic works. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, no fan of anybody named Casey, especially Edgar Bionic. Even like Casey at the bat? Yeah. Is that he right? struck yeah. out. What about Casey Jones with the railroad? He was a railroad man. Okay. I mean, you can't trust That's him. C-A-Y-C-E, Edgar Casey. Mm-hmm. Um Another fascinating uh, segment that we had here, what I find interesting is how the people cited saw themselves as Christians mm-hmm. and had Christian ideals alongside these occult beliefs yeah, that were, we're not on the Bible. Christian, but just this other stuff. But we really shouldn't be surprised because, yeah. as he shows, the same legacy is in a lot of our 
quote, Christian teachers today. Sure. And that some of these like, new thought teaching about positive things are just old yep. old occult ideas. Yep. Uh, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. we got to go. Let's get out of here. Come back tomorrow for our third segment. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. No fan of Johnny Appleseed after this segment, Bionic. Isn't that a shame? Yeah. We, had, we had more things debunked. Uh, th- uh, this week, we've been interviewing Mitch Horowitz, uh, the author of the book Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation. And it's an absolutely fascinating book. I strongly recommend our listeners get a hold of this book mm-hmm. for educational purposes, just for their own studies and to understand what's going on today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Johnny Appleseed, all mm-hmm. sorts of political figures. We found out there are occult tendencies, mm-hmm. you know, even uh, musicians like Burl Ives and other people. Strange people have occult effects. Of, and the, and the, fact that it's a, the fact that it's a cult means that it's hidden, so I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, let's go down to our third segment with Ms. Mitch Horowitz, and then we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Reading Andrew Jackson Davis today, believe me, this is tough reading. This stuff is not inviting light reading. And, and you can sit back and, and wonder, why was this guy so popular? But what's interesting is part of Davis's message very early on, uh, 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 back in the 1840s, was the idea that heaven was a realm populated by all the different peoples of the world. Davis said that in his trance states, he could somehow astrally project himself to other realms, to other dimensions. And he said that in visiting heaven, or what he called Summerland, you would encounter Christians, Jews, Native Americans, um, uh, uh, black slaves, uh, followers of Mohammed, as he referred to Muslims mm-hmm. at the time. And, you know, he was putting forth this very liberal American philosophy that salvation was available uh, through all kinds of different, uh, to all different nations and religions. It was this very radical point of view that he was putting forth through his, uh, um, uh, what he called his, his astral journeys to other dimensions. And I think people were as aroused, maybe even more aroused, by the radicalism of Davis's social vision. You know, the idea that you could find Native Americans in heaven. You know, it was, it was antithetical to the American psyche at the time. But the, 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 I think people were, were more aroused by Davis's social message than they were uh, by the supernatural claims that he made about himself. And you find this again and again in, in American occultism, that, 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 
the the spirituality is is very often uh, operating hand in hand with some kind of a liberal social vision. Mitch, let me ask you something related to that. Setting aside the the actual reality, the paranormal event that these people experienced, if one were to try to put forward such a radical social cultural idea about you know commonality of all men or yeah. or equality of men and women or things that were challenged at the era that people were in. Would it have been more safe or less safe to put it in a spiritual experience context? Would it have disarmed people and allowed them indirectly to be able to adopt these kind of feelings because it's brought that way from the spirit world? Or would it have been more of a danger to them in most cases because now you're messing with their religion? Uh, obviously, in some cases, it must have been successful. But uh, it seems like to me there's a, there's a risk, even just from the social adoption standpoint on couching these things in religious terms oh that's a wonderful question uh, it's very interesting you know i mean were wasn't andrew jackson davis for example using what he described as his supernatural experience as a as a as a method uh for pushing a a, a social point of view was it a cover you know in a sense for mm-hmm. pushing a social point of possibly view? that's a wonderful question you know, these things, they got so bound up together. It, it, it was a time, and again, you know, Davis was a figure who lived very near the burned-over district. And in the burned-over district, in fact, you can't really understand Davis without understanding the burned-over district. You know, there were so many radical things going on there. You had new religions, new political ideas. There was such a, um, I mean, for a period of about 30 or 40 years, uh, there was such a wave of new thinking that passed through the burned-over district that it was almost like, People moved effortlessly between radical religious movements and radical social movements. Mm-hmm. Lots of people who were involved in the early suffragist movement or the movement for women's voting rights were also involved in spiritualism. And the reason for that was that spiritualism was probably the first modern religious movement in American life that allowed women to be seen as religious leaders of of a certain sort. Most transmediums, most of the leaders sitting around the seance table were women. The movement, in effect, was was instigated by these two young teenage girls. So women who had designs on being um, social or religious leaders for a certain period of time flocked into spiritualism. So you, you couldn't find a suffragette activist for a period of time in the 19th century who had not spent some time at the seance table. The two movements just totally overlapped. So it was a function of the burned-over district. You had a radical politics mm-hmm. and a radical spirituality that were just married for a while. And in a certain sense, mm-hmm. that, that marriage has never really ended. So, you know, that's typified in the figure of, of an Andrew Jackson Davis. Well, you see, this would also explain why there was the big rise in occultism in the 60s. Because we had so many other social changes and upheavals, radical changes, the sexual revolution, the rise of the youth, um, you know, the the, the women's um, movement, uh, equality movement also grew much during the 60s. So it would make sense that the occult movement would come right along with it again in the next flare-up. But the, the, to me, the real question is, it's like chicken and the egg. Which one of these came first? Yeah, did, the, yeah. did, the, did the paranormal experience generate the social effects, or did the social effects create an atmosphere that supported the paranormal you know, experience? That yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. I will mention this about the 60s. You know, in a sense, um, 
and I, this is something that I might work with in a future book. Um, with the Woodstock generation, there was this big revival in in occultism, and yet it was a it, it was of a different sort because the values that were held by people who were involved in the occult and alternative religious culture in this country were very often what we would consider to be mainstream values. They weren't really countercultural, although their belief mm-hmm. systems could seem very radical. And Edgar Casey is a perfect example of that. Figures like Casey or the occult scholar Manley P. Hall, who was active throughout much of the 20th century, their following tended to be very middle American. They were mm-hmm. very middle-of-the-road folks. Right. And it was with the with the rise of the Woodstock generation, um, these movements started to be seen as countercultural, um, whereas the folks who were interested in Theosophy, Ed Casey, Manly P. Hall, uh, the mental healing movement, they very often tended to be very, very middle American folks. So there was a, mm-hmm. a bit of a rupture uh, in the 60s. Well, I, 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 that's a good point that you're making, where one is with the mainstream culture and the other was a departure from it. Although I would think some of these mainstream people saw a little bit of rebellion, at least from traditional religious expression, through these other venues. They may have been uh, warming a pew on Sunday. But they felt a little bit of a in a bit. Now, of course, many people could completely harmonize them and didn't see the difference between the two. They could totally integrate the two together. But I assume there was probably a little little bit of rebellion there, whether it was even a, the peak at the local horoscope or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, now, one of your historical figures, and and I know this is not some of the main philosophical content we talk about here, but but even one of our legendary icons of American history, Johnny Appleseed, ties into this. Yeah. Yeah, he, he actually yeah. was part of what we would typically consider an occult movement, although one that goes back a long way, the Swedenborgian Church. No, That's right. It's wow. really remarkable. Uh, uh, Johnny Appleseed was a, a, a man who grew up in, in Ohio named John Chapman, and he began to travel the country um, starting roughly in the 18-teens, um, planting apple orchards you know, and, 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 and in, in encouraging people to, to create these these. These, these magnificent uh, orchards and arboretums of, of apple trees. What, what Americans um, don't often know is that, that he also considered himself an evangelist for Swedenborgian Christianity, basically. Emanuel Swedenborg was a, um, a Swedish mystic who lived and worked uh, in the 1700s, and he was the kind of figure that we today would call a channeler or, or, or a kind of a, a, a trance medium. Like Andrew Jackson Davis, um, Emmanuel Swedenborg would go into a kind of a trance state and he would visit other realms and other dimensions. In fact, a lot of critics believe that Andrew Jackson Davis had plagiarized uh, or at least heavily borrowed from the work of Emmanuel Swedenborg. And Davis, of course, had an answer for everything. And he said, well, mm-hmm. of course... He's my teacher on the astral plane, so of course I, I'm using some sure. of his ideas and teachings. <laughs> so, but uh, um, and and so so Swedenborg um, was another figure who saw himself very much as a Christian, but but believed himself a kind of a, a, a modern prophet. That was how his followers saw him. And Johnny Appleseed um, uh, was a tremendous admirer of Swedenborg, and he would travel around the country not only planting apple seeds, but he, he kind of tore sections out of Swedenborg's books because he had no way of copying them uh, other than by hand, and he would hand out 
sections of some of Swedenborg's religious works to to Americans throughout the country. And um, Swedenborg, by the way, interestingly, he warned people against trying to contact the spirit world. Swedenborg mm-hmm. saw himself as a kind of a unique figure, and he said uh, that um, you know it, it, this is what separates a Swedenborg from an American figure in a sense. You know, Swedenborg was 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 a, a, a Swedish descent. And he said, look, um, contacting the spirit world is not something for ordinary people to do. It's too dangerous. There are too many risks. Don't do it. Uh, so, so whereas an American figure, and Andrew Jackson Davis, would say, oh, look, you know, we all have it within us to do this kind of thing. So there mm-hmm. you see the European and American divide. You know, that same quotation I used in that self-same presentation I mentioned before the, the UN group was that quotation from Swedenborg. And uh, I don't think he's the only one who's mentioned that as well. There have been other famous figures who had talked about, uh, I believe even Dr. John Dee uh, in his writings, uh, talked about, uh, you know, I hope my son does not proceed with these damnable activities that I've been oh, doing. Oh, that's very interesting. You, you know, scrying uh, with his uh, Edward, I forget his name, his assistant, but... Uh, he said, I just pray that he does not pursue this damnable approach that I've been doing. So, uh, but By again, the way, you, you had mentioned um, the connection between Andrew Jackson Davis and uh, George Bush, and, and, and I, I should mention something about that, um, because uh, Davis was very often criticized and he was attacked sometimes. Uh, people said he, he plagiarized or borrowed things from Emanuel Swedenborg. One of Davis's big defenders was a, a Swedenborgian minister and a spiritualist um, named George Bush, who had a pulpit actually two blocks away from the apartment here in New York City where I'm currently standing in uh, in the year 1859. And George Bush, uh, who was a Swedenborgian minister and a defender, in fact the most prominent defender of Andrew Jackson Davis, uh, was a first cousin uh, four times removed from the Bush uh, presidential clan. Uh, so he was a, a descendant of uh, the first um, uh, President Bush, George H.W. Bush, and, and of course of uh, the most recent, George W. Bush. Um, so it's a, a kind of an odd twist uh, to religious history in America. One doesn't necessarily know that uh, the, the Bush family uh, uh, descends from uh, probably uh, the most famous uh, spiritualist and Swedenborgian minister uh, mm-hmm. in America. I think it comes even more direct than that. If I remember correctly, Prescott Bush's, I believe, father, father yeah. or grandfather, also was a minister that w- I think was asked to leave his church oh, is because that of some of his some of his radical ideas like this. I didn't know uh, that. he was asked to leave. And then, of course, when you look at uh, Prescott, I believe uh, he was hanging out with uh, the, the lady who founded Planned Parenthood. What is her name? Oh, uh, gosh. I mean, uh, Margaret Sanger. Sanger. From, Margaret Sanger. Seems like reputable sources was having an affair with her and was one of the main fundraisers for Planned Parenthood. So it's very interesting where history takes these families in the way we perceive them. And speaking of presidential families, uh, one example you give, and I believe there's a lot more, but one example uh, is President Lincoln and the yes. important role spiritualism had at our, 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 our holy sanctuary of Christian America, the White House, Yep. Seances were going on. To me, that's right out of uh, Ezekiel chapter eight, if you remember, where the prophet Ezekiel was taken in the temple, and God effectively says, "Ezekiel, you're not going to believe what you see in here." And you <laughs> see all, all sorts of occult worship and activity behind the walls, 
And and Ezekiel thinks, you know, that is the worst thing I've ever seen, the most horrible, damnable thing. And God and says, says, that's not that. Not done. Yeah, yeah, we've got more. <laughs> and then he takes them further into the temple and sees, you know, sun worship and other kind of horrible, detestable, unclean things. And, uh, you know, we often see the White House as a representation of that. But there were actual seances being held with President Lincoln and his wife and other cabinet officials within the White House itself, correct? That's right. Uh, this was during the Civil War. And I, I write about this in the book. You know, there, there, there's some question uh, whether the historical record bears out the fact that there were seances held in the Lincoln White House. I really weigh the evidence, and I think the answer is that there were. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, the First Lady, was a committed spiritualist. Um, and she was a spiritualist for the same reason that lots of Americans were. She lost children to diseases and had nowhere to turn to deal or to cope with her grief. Um, this is another aspect of occult history in America. We didn't have any kind of a therapeutic spirituality in this country uh, in the mid-19th century. And when spiritualism offered people what, what they believed to be the chance of contact, um, it, 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 it was a kind of catharsis. It served to ease their pain, their grief. And, and Mary Todd Lincoln suffered a lifetime of grief. The Lincoln's favorite son, um, Willie, died of typhus fever um, shortly after they moved into the White House, and that marked a period of spiritualist practice in Mary Todd's life. So during um, the, the Civil War, there were historical records uh, of, of Lincoln holding two seances in the White House, and I, I think these things stand up. The question is, why did Lincoln allow this to be publicized at all? At the first seance, there was a reporter present from the Boston Gazette who wrote about the seance, and, and this, this newspaper account got reprinted uh, all over the nation, including in newspapers of the Confederacy. This was during the Civil War. And so, so um, one of Lincoln's uh, um, great um, biographers, Carl Sandburg, wondered why would Lincoln have permitted a reporter to be present. And one of the things that I uh, write about in the book is that I, I think, and it's kind of hard for us to imagine today, but I think that Lincoln saw these seances as a way of projecting an image um, to the American public on both sides of the war that the commander-in-chief was not overly encumbered uh, by his wartime command and he could still sort of sit back and enjoy a kind of novelty that Americans around the nation were experiencing. Spiritualism was not a deadly serious matter to everybody. There were some people who participated in it almost as entertainment. Yeah, and a I parlor think that, like a parlor game. Like a parlor game, exactly. Like yeah. playing around with a Ouija board or something, which I don't recommend. Mm -hmm. But right. yeah. something like that. And um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that, that that for some people, Bible reading was the only recreational activity that they had. Mm -hmm. Spiritualism and seances sort of became a recreational activity for some people. Some people mm -hmm. just did it as a means of thrill seeking. And mm -hmm. and and you know, some of the comments that Lincoln is supposed to have said during uh, the seance are actually very funny, and it really sounds like Lincoln. It sounds mm -hmm. like vintage Lincoln, you know, they, the spirits want to give him advice about the war, and he says, you know, well, you know, um, the advice really seems to be the same, you know, uh, uh, um, among the sinners and among the saints, you know, I, I'm mm -hmm. not hearing any different advice from the spirit world mm -hmm. than I'm hearing from my own uh, um, uh, uh, secretary of the Navy, who was sitting right there at the mm -hmm. seance table, and, you know, sort <laughs> well, of seemed to and, be and yet, and yet, Mitch, you, the story 
that I read in there about the influence that the, that these spirits or the channelers that uh, got the messages, as far as legislation he passed, like the yeah. Emancipation Proclamation, uh, yeah. if the story is to be believed, obviously he took that serious enough that that, that had at least a supporter, unless he was just being kind to the people in his presence, that no, it that, must that, have had some kind of role in giving some mental reinforcement to him. Yes, and I'm glad you raised that. You know, the, the, there were there were two two reports of seances. The first one seemed to be more of an exercise in novelty, and that got written up in the Boston Gazette and reprinted all over the country. The second one uh, was an episode in which the spirit world figures from the spirit world supposedly told Lincoln that he should sign the Emancipation Proclamation, which he was wavering about, and that if he did that, it would be the greatest accomplishment for which. He would be remembered. Now, whether that story is true or not, we have no way of verifying because it rests largely upon the memoir of one spiritualist who claimed she was involved in the seance. But I repeat it in the book because, again, it shows that impulse at work, that a kind of a reformist or radical politics was married uh, to a kind of uh, radical or alternative spirituality. You find these two things growing like branches from the same tree. So spiritualists didn't want to be seen as people who were exercising mysterious power behind the scenes of the presidency. They wanted to be seen as people who were influencing President Lincoln to do the greatest thing that a president could do uh, in the eyes of political reformers, which was to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. So that story mm-hmm. is tough to verify, but what it does show is, that, again, you know, this marriage um, of, of, of an alternative religion and a reformist politics was so strong in America, the two things just, just grew up hand in hand together. You know, I'm thinking you're probably not going to be invited by David Barton to come on with him to the Glenn Beck show. <laughs> you know, I don't, on that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and his talking about Christian America and our great Christian yeah. leaders, uh, he may know. But, you, you know, I don't think that's ever stopped, just from my limited knowledge. Uh, I, I look at people like uh, Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan, icons yeah. of the right, mm-hmm. uh, who, who admitted, who, well, yeah, who admitted they used horoscopes to make key decisions and events when they when they made. They sought other figures. We have Hillary yeah. Clinton uh, saying she's channeled the spirit of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. We have a president currently that carries a Hindu god in his pocket, uh, Hanuman, right right in his pocket mm-hmm. there. Uh, but, you know, even as we get into what the, the, the late 20th century version of spiritualism is, when we get into the, the UFO uh, cult belief system, which is really more of a technological extension of these beliefs, uh, you have a fascination of a lot of figures in Washington in this. They may not be having seances, but um, I was listening to Dr. Stephen Greer talk about how um, a gentleman whose name just escaped me, he was the Secretary of Defense under Bill Clinton. Actually, he's a very, very conservative right-wing uh, leader, still very prevalent, works for Booz Allen. Um, he supposedly invited him to come for one of these dinner parties they often have in Washington, D.C., and was, was seeking information from him about what these spirit leaders from the other planets were telling and what kind of things did they have to share. Uh, and then we have, uh, uh, you know, a host of other people like even the, the Clintons. Bill and Hillary both uh, spent much of their time with Lawrence Rockefeller uh, and were reading his book about the inevitability of contact with these other um, beings from other lands that were spirit brothers that were going to teach us. Uh, they were seen as extraterrestrial or UFOs. They could be interdimensional. But I really see it as the same thing. It is some kind of higher intelligence 
And it's almost like this has become the parlor game within the Beltway of Washington to replace the seances is a fascination in topics like this. Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the presidency, you know, as with Lincoln, very often reflects what the public is interested in. And, uh, you know, the, the, the trends that you see in the popular culture, you will find in the White House. Uh, the Reagans are, are a great example of this. You know, we, we know something about Nancy Reagan's uh, devotion to astrology, and it was a serious devotion. I mean, I, I, I don't think that, I don't know for sure that any real policy decisions were impacted by astrology during the Reagan administration, but his schedule sure was affected by astrology. And Nancy Reagan has written very forthrightly about the frequency with which she consulted uh, a San Francisco astrologer named Joan Quigley after the first assassination attempt on her husband's life. And one thing that I've written about recently, I did a piece for the Washington Post back in May, and, and your listeners can just go online. If you go to Google and you put in the words Reagan and a cult, you will find the piece, I guarantee it. Um, a, a friend of mine from Louisiana sent me a piece that Reagan had written in 1981 for Parade Magazine in which he uh, mm-hmm. was asked to describe uh, just, just, just to talk about what the 4th of July holiday meant to him personally. And my friend thought that there were some mystical overtones to the piece, because in the piece, Reagan tells this story, a legend, of a <laughs> kind of a mysterious master of wisdom being present at the signing of the Declaration of Independence and urging the delegates to run up and sign the parchment just at a moment when their spirits were flagging, and then the man seemed to disappear from the locked and guarded room. It's a very fanciful legend and I read it and I thought gosh I've read this somewhere before and in very similar language and it turns out that that legend had been reported by an occult philosopher named Manly P. Hall right. who, who mm. we mentioned earlier uh, who lived and worked in California for a good part of the 20th century Manly Hall wrote a book called The Secret Destiny of America where he repeated that legend and 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 in my article um, in the Washington Post, I go into the, the forensics of where the legend came from and so forth, and it's an interesting lineage. But the point is, Reagan took his version of the story directly from Manley P. Hall. So one of the most significant uh, American presidents of the 20th century was reading the work of an occult philosopher. There's no question about it, because the phraseology that Reagan uses is quite similar to the phraseology that Hall uses. But in a sense, you know, this kind of thing, it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't alarm me. It doesn't concern me. What it does is it, it makes the person uh, more of a flesh-and-blood human being. We all come from somewhere, and we all have uh, a, a, a lot of diffuse influences that, that inform us and make us who we are. And for Reagan, Reagan was, 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 was a, a Californian through and through, a Californian to the bone. Some of the alternative religious traditions that you find in California, the interest in astrology, the interest in Manly P. Hall, you know, they were part of his life. He was many, many mm-hmm. things. He was a Christian. Mm-hmm. He was a conservative. But he also had an interest in the occult. It's not something, I believe, it's not something that we should be should be scared of or concerned about. It's something that helps teach us more about the influences in our nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, I, I believe we read that actual article that you wrote on our show on Future Quake. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, good. Uh-huh. I don't know, a month or two ago, yeah. uh, came I across that. I think that's sort that. of what we, we said. We really ought to talk to this guy some and, more. And found it, <laughs> and, and found, and found it fascinating, yeah. uh, the, the connection that you found there. 
We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, still no fan of Johnny Appleseed, and I'll add Lincoln and mm-hmm. a few other fo- few other names to that. Lincoln's another icon that bites the dust on this. Another one bites the dust. Here he has occult activity seances in the White House, and I'm guessing that's not the only time occult activities happen. No, but, I'm, sure uh, that's, I'm sure that's true. People need to open their eyes and be circumspect, and somebody can help you, as Merv can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Nervous circumspect? Yeah. Come back tomorrow for our last segment with Ms. Horowitz. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Talking Quick Bionic because we don't have a lot of time. That's right. And this is our last segment with our guest this week, Mitch Horowitz, author of the book Occult America. Uh, I think you'll be fascinated with your concluding thoughts on the occult influences that have changed the America you and I know. And so with no further ado, here is Mitch Horowitz. We'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. There were so many people that you mentioned, and we have so little time to go over some of them. Um, but one point you do make is that of the people that you list, these mystics and occultists have had an impact on the national political process. And I'm talking about the leaders yeah, of these yeah. occult groups. Yeah. One of the one of the figures I, I write about at some length is, is one of Franklin Roosevelt's vice presidents, a, a man named Henry Wallace. Uh, Wallace was Roosevelt's second vice president. He preceded Harry Truman. And I'll tell you something. A figure like Wallace is just fascinating because... He really was a man with very overt and direct occult interests, and it's not something he tried to hide or conceal or cover up. He was a member of the Theosophical Society, which is an occult organization with very deep roots in America. He was a prominent uh, Freemason. He was very openly interested in astrology. He was interested in whether astrology could be used to help uh, predict the weather for farmers. He was interested in Tibetan Buddhism before most people in America had ever heard of such a thing. He was a real searcher. And uh, Wallace is actually the man who's responsible for the mysterious iron pyramid symbol that appears on the back of our dollar bill. That's mm-hmm. the reverse of the Great Seal of America. The front of the Great Seal is the more familiar uh, American eagle. Uh, but the, the, the reverse is this very mysterious iron pyramid, which is an image that I think has been uh, inspired to some extent by Freemasonry. And it's surrounded by this Latin slogan that reads... Um, uh, annuit septus noos ordo seclorum, which roughly speaking can translate to God smiles on our new order of the ages. Uh, Wallace felt that, that in the days of the New Deal, um, uh, this could be translated roughly into um, 
a kind of a, a, a new deal of the ages. He felt that that's what the Roosevelt administration was trying to do. It was trying to right. reignite the American spirit in some way, and that if we reached back into history and 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 reclaim this slogan, which was uh, designed as part of the Great Seal of America, commissioned actually by the Continental Congress on July 4, 1776. Um, it could be part of a program that would help to reinvigorate the country. Wallace had the idea of placing this, this mysterious image and this slogan on the back of the dollar bill. He approached Roosevelt with it. Roosevelt loved the idea. He actually helped design um, the positioning of this symbol on the back of the dollar bill. And, um, and, 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 you know, it was the kind of thing where both Wallace and Roosevelt were Freemasons. They were very comfortable with this kind of portentous, mysterious imagery. And uh, Wallace was a guy who really believed in the universality of all religions, of all nations, and some of his political ideas uh, were, were, in a way, they were, they were very much ahead of their time. He believed in setting kind of international labor standards, mm-hmm. international human right. rights standards. His mysticism helped inform his politics. Politically, Ultimately, he wasn't very successful, and obviously today he's forgotten. Very few people know who Henry Wallace was. But if you really well, want to I, look for in a cult well, figure you, at the highest echelons of our politics, it's Wallace. Right. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. I was just going to say uh, he's not forgotten by our audience because he has come up numerous times. We, we've had uh, docu- well, documentary filmmaker Chris Pinto comes on our show frequently. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. I think you would like his stuff. You might check him out in your spare he's, time. He's an yeah. excellent artist, does incredible work. Uh, uh, Chris Pinto has docula- documented a lot of the, the Rorick connection. And one thing I, oh. I'd ask you to do on our behalf, if you don't mind, is uh, supposedly the possibility exists that, that Nicholas Rourke's casket is buried inside a uh, cornerstone in one of those buildings in New York. Uh, and if we'll yeah, get you the name of it, we'd like for you... and knock that cornerstone out for us. Late at night, I'd like you to take that thing off and see if you can find that casket behind that I'd, cornerstone. I'd be happy to. I, I, we won't tell my wife I'm doing this. I'll just... I'll slip yeah. out as if I'm getting a you know gallon of milk for the kids. <laughs> well, there, there is there's a... a, a there, yeah, uh, there, there, there is a Nicholas Rorick Museum. Rorick was, of course, a, a Russian mystic that, that Wallace was involved in, and his involvement later led to Wallace's political downfall. But, mm-hmm. but um, uh, along with other factors, but there, there, there is a Nicholas Rorick Museum uh, here in Manhattan, where I live, and there's a, there was a, 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 a pretty formidable um, building, a, a, a skyscraper, building. you could say. Yeah. That, that had housed some of Rorick's works and no longer does, but there's a smaller building that forms a, a Rorick Museum. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I would certainly, uh, again, recommend his work because a lot of the familiarity with Francis Bacon, his view for the New World, uh, the possible connection with Francis Bacon and Dr. John Dee in this hidden information that was taken from the angelic visitors through Francis Bacon and his influence in the settlers in the New World and the New Atlantis, you know, a, a neoplatonic uh, type democracy that be created. A lot of this we discovered, I, I think, through Chris Pinto's work. Yeah, Chris first of all, people, but Chris really sort of solidified it, if you will. Riddles and Stone, a number yeah. of other works. So I highly recommend it, and it's just a very uh, artistic, polished in, uh, work that he's. Oh, I'm very glad to hear that. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that your listeners are are being exposed to the life of, of Henry Wallace because he was such a unique figure on the American scene. I'm, I'm very glad yeah. to hear that. That's that's to put it lightly, but. Yeah. Uh, of course, they're exposed to unique figures every week when Dr. Future and Tom yeah. Bionic come Welcome on. Welcome to Future Quiz. <laughs> 500,000 radio dials change. There, there, are, there are so many things that I could ask you about, 
and I can only tell our listeners that they need to get the book to go through each of them. You go into the to the world of our games, uh, the history of the Ouija board, what yeah. kind of impact it's had. Uh, you go into the New Thought teachings and how it evolved, as you you mentioned briefly, into people like Norman Vincent Peale uh, and others who we don't tend to think occultist when we see somebody like him, but the strong connections that bear directly uh, to these New Thought teachings. I was fascinated by an area I didn't know I would find so interesting, and that was in the african-american community and the impact of hoodoo and how they had been able to take uh household items you could get at the local drugstore and use them to be able to perform what i would call root worker uh based work uh something that you could almost have some kind of distant connection to something like wicca where you're you have a very earth-based uh you know herb root based uh spells and potions and things like this that was fascinating information that i knew nothing about and did not know how huge it was and how it really grew into um, some of the prominent political processes within the black community as well, too, that had their influences in that. And, of course, they're going to meet some some unexpected characters like uh, Burl Ives, yeah. uh, you know, oh. our, our our cuddly snowman from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know, I should have won. You know, and his close friendship to Manly P. Hall. That's right. He was an esoteric Freemason. You know, I should have suspected him because I can remember as a kid watching him come on on, um, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and singing a song he wrote about Kahootek, the (laughs) comet. And when it passed by, how it would transform humanity, and I, and I took it as a joke. But but you mentioned Gandhi. Um, he yep. had a connection with Theosophy, which yes. seems to be the real granddaddy of the modern era. Yes. Um, the the skeleton that everything else hangs on. Although you've got some lone wolves out there creating their own systems, like Psychian and others. Yes. But uh, Theosophy is the real orderly system that has a methodical approach. Uh, uh, Gandhi. Got a lot of his direction from it. Obviously, the impact of uh, Blavatsky and and Olcott is profound outside of America. When, yeah. uh, Ceylon, uh, Sri Lanka, um, India, how it affected the overthrow of governments and imperialism. Yeah. Uh, how it how it was a liberating force. I did not know that Blavatsky was so active in the. I guess you could call it the Civil War of Italy, uh, that led to the unification of Italy and. Pushing down the Vatican's preeminence. Yeah, it, you know, Blavatsky is a figure who just seems to be everywhere at once, and and you know, she was an American citizen. She she was of Russian nationality. She spent only a few short years here in America in the 1870s, um, but she viewed this. She she said she wanted to visit the cradle of spiritualism. She felt America was the great spiritual laboratory that would affect religious changes all over the world and I think she was prophetically correct she came here to America uh, she left as an American citizen relocated to India had a tremendous influence on the founding of the Indian independence movement and a tremendous influence on Gandhi and politically her influence returned to America in the 1950s when Martin Luther King who was in a seminary student uh, started to uh, read Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolence and that eventually form the centerpiece of his political program. So it's just remarkable how these things will start here in America, they'll travel far abroad, and then they'll come back to us. And that's only speaking of Blavatsky's political influence. I mean, in terms of spirituality, she really was uh, the mother of, of alternative spirituality, not only in the United States, but all around the world. Her, her influence was just extraordinary. She was a person yeah. of really mysterious proportions. She, she is New Age. And when you take Annie Besant or Alice Bailey or others, basically the whole tree of flowers in the modern era, as I see, 
from her particular work. But the yes. quote you had from her, she made it very explicit that there is something that had already been germinated in the United yep. States regarding to this secret work. And, and you know, for, for someone from a Christian background, her writings and her protégés afterwards can be quite frightening. Uh, yep. when, when they talk, they, they use things like Luciferian initiations and, and, and other kind of things that are, you know, just totally forbidden from, from the kind of background we come from. But they say that this great work that they plan to do was already, uh, started and America was the critical path. Now, Manly P. Hall, as you point out as well, wrote a whole book about the fact that America was a critical stage of bringing about this great wisdom forward. And, um, you know, it, it seems to be that Francis Bacon and others foresaw that, whether they were told that from someone else or not. But there has been a methodical plan, uh, maybe just under the radar screen of American history, that has built up this kind of system. And some now are becoming a little bit more aware of it. Um, what, what, how would you summarize what they think this great destiny is supposed to be of America? And at what stage do we do you think we are in having this great work come to pass? Well, you know, I think America is a land founded for people who want to be religiously free, and I, I don't say that with any cheap sentimentality. It's it's easy uh, for statements like that to descend into slogans or descend into bumper stickers, but when you see that very early on in its history, back in the 1600s, America was attracting people who were fleeing religious persecution in Europe. And very often, and I, I write about this in the book, very often these were people who were kind of religious idealists. They were, of a, of a, of a, of, they were from the radical fringes of the Reformation. They were working with mystical and sometimes with occult ideas. And they found safe harbor in America. So movements like the Shakers, for example, came from England to America. Um, Central Europe was just filled with all kinds of religious innovation that, that, that started to fall under the, the, the cloud of persecution in the 1600s. Many of those people who were engaged in mystical sects and communes, they came to the American colonies. And then you have spiritualism flowering in this country, right out of the burned-over district, this, this small farming community in the mid-19th century, and we start to export spiritualism um, abroad you know, to, to uh, France, to England, Madame Blavatsky writes as early as 1888 that there's a, a new spiritual age dawning in the world and a, that it's going to begin in America. I came across a favorite quote of mine from, from Ronald Reagan, which he, which he said in 1974. He said, you can call it mysticism if you want to, but I've always believed that there was some divine plan that placed this great continent between two oceans to be sought out by those who were possessed of an abiding love of freedom and a special kind of courage. You know, this comes from a very conservative president so mm -hmm. we there 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 is a sense i think and i think it's fair to say that america's deepest purpose uh has been and continues to be the protection of the individual spiritual search people have been able to come mm -hmm. here and live out the search for conscience uh and the search for truth without fear of persecution and as mm -hmm. long as that continues we're fulfilling our our deepest destiny as a nation well you, you know there was a number of um other movements, particularly in the 20th century, and you had to you had to sort of put the fence around somewhere to close your book. But I mentioned a, a few, wrote down a few that I thought were influential yes. in recent times, like Scientology, yeah. uh, the work of people like Jack Parsons and Kenneth Anger. Um, 
the Indigo children, Starseed children, the whole Space Brothers Nine uh, belief, the People's Temple movement, Heaven's Gate, uh, Georgia Guidestones, as far as the icons go. Uh, is there anything significant about these uh, that you'd like to have a closing comment? We're coming to the end. Or anything else on the American historical landscape, in your opinion, be- well, beyond yeah. the context of your book? Those movements are, are all influential and, and important, and in a sense, I conceived of my book as a, a kind of a prehistory of the New Age. Mm-hmm. Once, once the Woodstock generation hit, once the Aquarian Age hit in the late 60s, suddenly the New Age culture just spread everywhere. You know, it became this great big kind of evergreen on the American scene, and it never went away. And the door for that was opened. Uh, and its influences, by the way, are felt not just, you know, in terms of alternative spiritual movements, but within very mainstream and evangelical movements in terms of the positive thinking philosophy that we were talking about earlier. So the, the New Age just opened the door to a kind of wave of self-help and therapeutic spirituality that just spread out everywhere. And there were so many alternative spiritualities that it was impossible to kind of uh, contain them all. So. So, so Occult America is kind of about the history that opened that door and what it created. Um, I, I may, in the future, uh, uh, conceive of a, of a new book that, 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 that is really a history of the New Age from, from the Woodstock generation mm-hmm. up through the present day that would deal with some of the movements that, that you're describing. But, uh, I mean, the branches well, just went everywhere. Well, and, and, and to be fair, I have to say that those that I mentioned um, have been pretty well documented Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have had um, uh, you know a lot of literature out there. If you search for it, you can find out. Although I would certainly like to hear your take on some of these groups because I think you you do a little bit better job of digging underneath and finding more details than what some other writers have done. Uh, but you know if you're looking at new topics about, uh, for example, the modern era burned over district, you have to look no farther than right here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, you, you've got a place here that uh, is considered the buckle of the Bible Belt, and we have the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention, the United yeah. Methodist, all these universities, uh, mission boards, Lifeway bookstores, Christian universities, and we also have the largest pagan idol in the Western world, uh, oh, in the Temple to her downtown. Yeah. yeah, the largest pagan idol in the world of Athena, in a huge tower to her, uh, just like they looked out in Greece. Uh, you walk right in inside a mystical temple with huge doors that open up, and you see see her. Uh, you've got a gentleman like William Henry. Are you, are you familiar with him from the Dreamland shows? Oh, yeah. Part of the Coast to Coast. Sure, sure. He interviewed he's, me, actually. He, yeah, he's yeah. based in our community right here, right in yeah. the same community where we produce our show. Uh, uh, does does his... Uh, uh, what, what is the uh, the High Strangeness Conference in Nashville every year? He wrote a book called Nashville City of Light, where yeah. I believe, I, I haven't read it in quite some time, but I believe he makes the assertion that Nashville has the most uh, occult architecture of any city in the world. Oh, no yeah, kidding. More so, more so than Stonehenge and Giza. Yeah. No kidding. So if you if you want a burned over district, we can give you one here. I like it. I like it. Well, that, you know, it's it's funny. The thing that's wonderful is, uh, you know, our, our neighborhoods and our communities are never quite what we think they are. You know, here in Manhattan, right. we're supposed to be the city of commerce, you know, but I take people on a cold <laughs> New York walking tours. I have a couple planned for the early fall. And, and this city is just dotted with scenes of occult history, including the, the founding of the Theosophy movement that we were talking about earlier. So nothing is ever quite what it seems. You can go to a downtown uh, Presbyterian church in Nashville and see uh, pyramids. pyramids and yep. sphinxes and things yeah, like a, that. There's a snake inscribed in the uh, 
down by City Hall on the on the ground there, right in front of City Hall, big snake head and uh, inscribed around it in a circle is wisdom, which is pretty. Yeah. No pretty kidding. I think I'm going to have yeah. to come down and ask you guys to give me a tour. This is yeah, uh, man, yeah. come on down. I'll it. give you the. <laughs> at, at least, at least it's tour. at least it's not a place with such overt Christian uh, mythology and symbols as Washington D.C. Because as we all know, there are only Judeo-Christian symbols. Right, exactly. Right. That's, another, that's another show. That's another show. <laughs> just pyramids uh, and obelisks. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, or we'll we'll just go out to uh, somewhere like Elberton, Georgia. You know, get out in the country, get away yeah, from all that. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> the uh, what about the future? This is future quake. Uh, as we come to a close here, yeah. What do you think will be the most significant occult movements in America in the near future and the rest of the 21st century? Well, one thing I would watch for. Uh, I think we're going to see Halloween transform from a kids' holiday to a genuine religious holiday. It is based on an ancient uh, Celtic holiday. It 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 got bound up with, um, with eventually with uh, All Saints Day and All Souls Day uh, by the Catholic Church, um, and and then it turned into a kind of a kids' holiday, a trick or treat holiday after the Second World War. Lots of people who are interested in modern paganism and Wicca are trying to reclaim Halloween as a genuine religious holiday. Watch for that to happen, and watch for it to start within the military, because there are uh, uh, a great many people who claim Wicca as their faith within the military, and they have their own chaplains, and they have their own symbols, and, and, and things need to be codified in the military before they kind of reach the rest of society, and, and the impetus could come actually from Wicca practitioners within the military for Halloween to be established and respected as an actual religious holiday rather than just kid stuff. Um, Channeling is a movement that I think is really, really growing. Channeling is just going on everywhere. Every town, every city seems to have channeling circles springing up. That's something to watch for. Um, I've been, well, gosh, we, we, we touched only briefly on the life of Joseph Smith and, and, and his life in the Burned Over District, but I think within the Mormon Church there is a, a growing awareness of some of the um, occultic and supernatural activities that were a part of Smith's childhood home in the Burned Over District when he was growing up there as a very young man. I think there's a greater realization and a respectful, healthy, intelligent realization of that uh, within some circles within the, the Mormon Church. So uh, these are some currents that I would uh, watch for. I think these are things that are going to be developing into the future. Hmm. And I would assume that the environmental movement has helped be a bridge to get people based in more earth-based religions like Wicca, like pantheism, pagan religions, things like this, right? Oh, I think that's a good point. Yeah, I think okay. those movements are uh, there. Yeah. There is significant overlap there. You know, yeah. as with all radical religious and uh -huh. political movements in America's past. Yeah. Gaia, Gaia worship. Um, yeah, I guess. Well, if somebody wanted to see what the future would be in that direction, maybe they just need to go back and watch the original Wicker Man. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Let's hope uh, with a happier ending. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> 73. But, but uh, uh, you know, we've got the new one coming out from the same director, uh, I guess within months. Supposedly, Cowboys for Christ is coming out, which is the, the second chapter or the, the new updated version of this. So oh, no will, kidding. Yes, and it will probably bring a rise of interest in these belief systems. I'm sure Twilight and these other activities. younger generation as well, too. Um, yeah. in, in, in closing, one, one last question. Um, we have a large 
uh, evangelical Christian community here, and one could debate on whether it's strong or whether uh, it's seen its stronger days, but it's still there. Uh, it, it's had an impact, at least up until recently, in the political process. How do you see this clash between an entrenched evangelical community in, in America and the growing occult communities actually resolving itself? And do you think America will go the way that, say, Europe is now uh, and really, you know, just in develop this romantic fascination with pagan religion? It seems like you're saying, yes, it would. What do you think will happen to the traditional evangelical community that stood so strongly, at least their leadership and teaching against it? You know, I really believe that in in America we have um, we have proven that people of radically different faiths can successfully interact together. This has been a part of our past and a part of our present. And again, I refer to the military. Um, the military is tremendously religiously diverse. In the year 2007, the um, Department of Veterans Affairs ruled that service members who practice Wicca, for example, are entitled to have pentagrams on their gravestones. If you go to the mm -hmm. VA website and you look up all the different symbols that are permissible on headstones or all the different religious symbols that are permissible within the military, it is a litany of occult symbolism. And all these people, ranging from Wiccans to evangelical Christians, for the most part, for the most part, are functioning together successfully within the military. I don't know that that kind of diversity plays out within one organization anywhere else in the world. I'm very heartened by that kind of thing. I really do believe that from the founding days of Philadelphia up through uh, 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 current times in this country, we've proven again and again and again that we can uh, live together and function together successfully even as we hearken to very, very different trumpets of faith. Um, and that's not cheap idealism. I really do believe that in my heart. And I think that as long as America keeps modeling that uh, for the world, we are fulfilling our deepest purpose as a nation. And I, I think that impulse is is, is alive and strong in our country. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on our show. Mm -hmm. This has been extremely informative. Very informative. But, but only uh, just a pinch of the kind of information that's available in your book, Occult America. And uh, it's uh, subtitled, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation. Uh, no matter where you stand in our audience, uh, and if you are an evangelical Christian like ourselves, you will find useful information for your studies that uh, you can process in useful ways uh, from the information disclosed in here. I, I, I can't imagine too many, maybe uh, Robert Hieronymus or a few, but not many who could claim to be a stronger uh, historian. I know Obadiah Harris and people like that out there all would, would probably make some claims like that. But um, you, you certainly come across as being a premier uh, historian and someone who is aware of what's going on in this field. And we'd sure like to have you back sometime if you'd be willing to make a return appearance on future questions. Oh, it would be a great pleasure. I, I've really enjoyed being on, and, and, and I'd be very happy to come back. And I know, I know you're extremely busy, but uh, I think this will become a bigger and bigger topic, and we'd love to have you back to talk about some of the parts of your book we didn't get to or your future projects or even some things going on uh, in the news and uh, harken back. How can people get your book? What's the best way for them to get a hold of it? Oh, they, they can get it from, from wherever they like to purchase books, whether it's their local bookseller or, or whether it's Borders or Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com. You can go any place books are sold, and, and you can find the book.
Can they go search the Akashic records and get this information as well? <laughs> I, I, my, my publisher is working that out. Actually, you think ebooks okay. are difficult? <laughs> yeah. I, I guess you wouldn't. You, you wouldn't want them to go around the charges for the book uh, going that direction. But, uh, <laughs> they, we, we, we we haven't worked out those subrights with the Akashic records. But <laughs> okay. Well, the <laughs> easiest way is to go go to your favorite bookstore and get yeah. Cult America. Uh, Mr. Orwich, thank you so much for being with yeah. us, and we look forward to having you back. Please keep us on your short list of people to keep us apprised of new developments in the field. Oh, I'd be happy to. It's, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you again. God bless. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, hmm, question mark, Bionic. Oh, not back on that again. Thank yeah. goodness we're nearing the end of the week. Uh, you know, at the end of our interview, which was a great one with Mr. Horwitz, uh, he he said the thing to keep an eye on in the future is how Wicca becomes sort of another mainstream religion. The military has already taken steps to do it, mm-hmm. expected to go more mainstream, which is basically earth-based pagan religion. Yeah, uh, in line Samaria. with the whole uh, thing with the environment and stuff like that. Yeah. So we'll be reporting on that more. But Merv, can you tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. we got to go. All right, let's get out of here. Come back tomorrow for tomorrow's Tremors. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am not Dr. Future. I am Tom, who has to get into the mic because I got the... Uh, yeah, pull that mic closer. Yeah. La, la, la. It always Bionic. sounds like you're in another planet. Really? Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this week's guest. Uh, <clears throat> I think we had a really good guest this week. and uh, rocked. Mm-hmm. And uh, now it's Friday. Mm-hmm. Which, as you know, Tom, means what to us and our listeners? Well, it means this is the Revelation 18 uh, News Watch, where we all get together and talk about uh, the kings of the earth and mm-hmm. the great merchants of the earth. And mm-hmm. sometimes we call it... Uh, and their sorcery. And their sorcery. And well, deceiving the nations of the earth. Yeah, and, and trading in the souls of men. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. Or... Today's review of the future's news or tomorrow's tremors. Mm -hmm. That's right. All right. We got that out of the way, that requirement. It's like almost like our liturgy Mm -hmm. that we have to say or ritual. Uh, So now we've got that. We've been initiated now into Mm -hmm. Friday's version of Future Quake. It's time for some news. But before we do that, you made some news. Uh, Now, this is at the time of our recording here. Mm -hmm. This is a few weeks ago for our listeners. But... um, what notable event did you attend well, and I went participate and, in? Well, I went and spoke at the uh, Roswell Ancient of Days conference at the, in Roswell, New Mexico. Yep. Uh, you know, Future Quake was a presence last year, so we figured we might as well just keep that mm-hmm. 
keep that rolling. So now I did it last year. You did it this year. I guess Pyro will be taking it next year. Yeah, I think that's they. We've already talked with with the management next uh-huh. year that we need Pyro to okay. give a dissertation on on uh, our uh, problems. Ex- yeah, exhorting exhortation. Yeah. So Guy Malone, the old alien stranger himself, was yes. leading it. He and Joe Jordan. Yes. And you, it was really just a gang of three yes. speaking. Mm-hmm. So you got a lot more attention than they, these ones where you have this huge roster. Well, you know, they felt the prestige of the guests and everything would really I guess hold so. it up. They had they had the headliner already when they got you. <laughs> yeah. Now you had somebody go with you, did you not? I did, indeed. Who who tagged along uh, on the adventure? I went with uh, uh, no stranger to this show uh, or you and I, Robert Hyde. Robert Hyde. And it was a wild it was a wild time. What an experience! Mm-hmm. So you all trekked across the country. Now you all drove through the night from mm-hmm. Nashville straight to Roswell. Is that right? Yes, correct. Sort of like smoking the bandit. Uh, yep. But we didn't have uh, Sally Fields in the passenger seat. It was yeah, Robert Hyde. Okay. <laughs> and I don't look like Burt Reynolds. So. Well, um, did you all find anything to talk about? I'd be hard to imagine you two no, find anything pretty, to talk about. No, it was about. pretty quiet for the most part. Okay. Yeah. Talk about celebrity gossip yeah, and that we, kind of thing. We had, a, we had a rousing, we had a rousing display of like what was Britney Spears wearing this time. Uh-huh. Other than that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you solve any world problems? Um, no, but we did find some solutions. We just can't, couldn't implement them. Okay. All right. So you got there mm-hmm. and uh, you you gave a talk on sleep paralysis. I did. How was that taken by the by the audience? Uh, it was overall very very good. Our buddy Tom Horn was there. Oh. And, um, I was I was uh, engrossed with uh, talking with a few other people, and he walked by, shook my hand, and just said, "I really, really enjoyed it." So, uh, you know, high praise mm-hmm. from a guy who's sort of been uh, involved in this these general areas. Yeah, for sort a of a mentor in yeah. some ways. Uh, he sent an email to me saying, "I think the word's terrific." So, <coughs> anyway, um, so anything else notable you noticed about the crowd or what? Um, well, I'll tell you. Oh, well, there were there were quite a few interesting things. One of which was um, just the dis- level of discussion I had with different folks. I had a uh, I, I had dinner with a gentleman who has been involved in um, a number of very very heavy ministries, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, um, he would we would talk for a while, and he would say things like, "Yep, that happened one time. I was praying, and uh, I the Lord told me that this guy was going to come, and I had to, you know." breathed life into him and knocked on the door and it was this guy and he said first words out of his mouth were I'm going to kill you I hate when I hear that <clears throat> and then he said so then I looked back and said well I'm here to give you life and uh, hmm. it's pretty like you know it's not every day that uh, with you it's almost every day though it feels when like I hear your place. exploits I think that's that's pretty normal yeah but it's neat to meet some kindred spirits like that indeed living on the edge of the Christian walk yeah, he was he was uh, pretty intense. Really great, great guy. He was a pastor and did you, Jewish guy. Did you sense in the audience that there were people who were searching or that came from more of the New Age side mm-hmm. of, which is the normal folk at show? I mean, they can get upwards of 50,000 people at a Roswell UFO festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, were some of those people, you think, did they percolate into the audience? Uh, I think they definitely did. In fact, at the Ancient of Days conference there, um, there was one part where uh, uh, a lady named Joyce Ahrens, who was uh, somebody that Joe has helped, mm-hmm. was there in the audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, m- 10 or 15 years before, I guess, they had done a PBS special on her. Closer to the mic. Okay. I can't understand this. Your voice is a little husky there, so just yeah. get a little closer to the mic. Little, yet, yet a little closer. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it looks like sign language. 
Yeah, it's called Motion Closer <coughs> to the Mic. And I was trying not to make it obvious to our audience, okay. so thanks for yeah, I'm here for you. keeping that, you know, just here in the studio. <laughs> so, Miss Aarons was there. Yeah, um, and I'll tell you, when she came up to give her short testimony about the truth and the witness of, of Jesus and, and a- ending abductions, those type of abductions and that sort of demonic spiritual activity, I looked, having seen Joe's talk before, instead of looking at her and her testimony, I looked back. And uh, out of about a hundred and let's say a hundred and twenty people mm-hmm. in the audience, fifty of them had mouth open jaws. Yeah, yeah, it was you know, mouths agape. Yeah, it was just like if you you could have driven a Mack truck through some of those mouths. It was just wow, like, boom, jaws were on the floor, mm-hmm. and um, there were a lot of people shaking. There was one gentleman there wearing a uh, he was wearing all black, and his T-shirt had a picture of that uh, that Jack Parsons uh, Jack Parsons mm-hmm. L. Ron Hubbard drawing of Lom. Yeah, and uh, uh, I can tell I could tell that it really really hit him because he was like uh, he was white knuckled on the table. Wow, his hands on like oh. wow. Yep, that's what the truth of God will do. Mm-hmm. But you know what? We have to go out to those people to share it. Yep. If no, we, want, if we, we only want to be hang out on forums and yeah. post you know very random things about pre-tribulational. Well, you know. We so much as Christians want to just be around people like us that don't make us feel uncomfortable. Sure. But, you know, th- these guys like Guy Malone, Joe Jordan are heroes to me. Yeah. That they go out there with people. It's like roll tanks. We're going to go to some really weird people and we're going to try and get them saved by showing them because what? they lo- the truth. Because they love them. Yeah. Because they love them. They go out there and they don't have any pretense. They don't act all churchified. They don't mm-hmm. act holier than now, but they do tell them the truth and love and way out. Mm-hmm. They relate to these people. They go to the yeah. conferences and things, and I just think it's very heroic. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree. Anything else while you were there that caught your eye? Um, I'll tell you one thing that was pretty amazing is I was there at the booth. Uh, yeah. You know, they have a booth there in the main convention center. And uh, this is mostly all other UFO stuff. Yeah, that's mostly sort of far UFOs, out, lots of AG. people. There was one, one lady who uh, was channeling, doing some channeling, New Age channeling of mm-hmm. spirits and stuff. And uh, when I got to the booth there, I just prayed real fervently. I said, "Lord, bring people to me that you needed that you know needed to hear what mm-hmm. I had to say." And uh, uh, he sure he sure did that. It was like every every five ten minutes there was somebody there that I felt like hmm. uh, was at least respectful of what I had to say, and uh, at least listened. And a lot of people who were really like, "Wow." This is a view that I have not heard, and it makes sense. Hmm. You know, yeah, one gentleman, I even gave him a Bible, and he was really... I saw him later wandering around the thing. He wasn't looking at the booths. He was looking at his Bible. Really? So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now, um, having said all that, mm-hmm. and I know we need to move on here, mm-hmm. you had sort of an experience coming back, didn't mm-hmm. you? I mean, I know we've got other news. Can you briefly give us a little yeah. story of your return the if short... you thought everything was over? Yeah, well, we came and uh, uh, Brother Robert and I had been talking about spiritual warfare and we prayed sort of like, Lord, show us show us the next step. Show us somebody to pray for or what mm-hmm. to pray for. And uh, we got pulled over at about 1 in the morning by an Arkansas State Trooper. You know, it's funny. It's it just about within a slightly out half, of mind. half hour or so after I called you, I think, or an hour yeah, or something like that. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he, he buzzed up on us like, you know, and just got right on our bumper and was kind of weaving back and forth and try then like mm-hmm. did like, you know he was a policeman? No, he did not. He didn't have his lights that. on or no, anything. nothing. And he followed us like this for about a mile, and I was actually sort of snoozing. And Robert said, "There's somebody behind us who's acting crazy. 
we need to we need to do something about it. And I I got up and turned around and looked, and there's this cop like he's right on her bumper. Then he'd back off a little bit. Then right on her bumper, back off a little mm-hmm. bit, and trying to turn. And uh, I I didn't know what exactly was going on. I thought maybe it was just somebody who had a little too much to drink on the holidays mm-hmm. over the weekend. And um, uh, I remember thinking, but they didn't have their lights on. Yeah, no, I I, okay. I didn't know, you know. Um, mm. So anyway, anyway, I remember thinking. Uh, it'd be a good idea if a cop was here, and that's when he turned his lights on. Wow. Yeah. Like, oh. He, yeah, I mean, I don't want to take up too much news story time, but yeah. basically he approached the car, you know, ready to ready for, for action and told us he got us he got us doing between 71 and 72 and a 70. Oh, my goodness. And we needed what to, outlaws. Yeah, I know. Clearly an affront to the state of Arkansas. And a um, danger to the people. Well, uh, indeed. Indeed. And then he, uh, at one point... I mean, I could go. I could. We could make a whole show out of this. But at one point, he actually approached the car and wanted to know if he was going to have a problem with me uh, because I was sitting in the car, looking back at his car, like uh, looking in the rearview mirror. N- no, I I had had to get out of the car because the rental information was in the trunk, which he demanded. So oh. I gave him the rental agreement and was waiting to get it back. And him and Robert were in the in the vehicle together. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got out and told me to get back in the car. So I got in the car. And was sitting there waiting for my rental stuff, and he came and, you know, had the, you know, wanted to see my driver's license and uh, wanted to ask me point blank if he was going to have a problem with me because he saw me staring at his car. Hmm. So. Um, so you were going 72. He already knew you were looking for trouble. Yes. You clearly. Know. Um. So what did he and Robert have a discussion about? I don't know. That was in the car, but it was kind of a 32 questions like. Who was he? Who was I? What was in yeah. the car? Were we hiding anything? That kind of those kind of stories, yeah. those kind of questions. Yeah. Okay. How how was things left? Well, he gave he gave uh, Robert a warning and let us go without shooting us, which okay. I remember thinking if we get out of here without a pistol being drawn, we'll be yeah. it'll be amazing because did, he was out of his mind. Did he ever reach toward anything like that? Or yeah, he walked up to me with his hand, with his gun in his hand. With his gun in his hand? Yeah, I'm sorry. No, that's incorrect. He had his he had his hand on the gun, but it was already the the little thing that L- the latch on, the yeah. latch was off, and it was a little bit out of his. So holster. he could get it out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was nuts. That was totally nuts. And then we so we so we got we left and we drove down the road a couple miles, and then there he was again, like on our bumper, you know, doing the same nutty thing. And I actually thought, well, I think I'm gonna call the. Mm-hmm. Whoever I can get with a 911 call, because this is out, yeah. this, is, this is off the hook crazy. And then he ended up pulling over the car to our right. Uh, we were in the fast lane. This other car was in the slow lane. Yeah. He pulled the car. He pulled the car over to the right of us. Yeah. And as the car pulled over, he actually parked in front of it, like blocking it from escape. And, yeah. and as we drove off, I thought, more maybe I should be calling somebody. What you had a Will Grigg experience. Pretty close. I mean, nobody like beat me or shot me. A Will Grigg column, basically. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, basically. I mean, you know, huh. people who people who ding us a lot of times about this stuff uh, apparently don't travel through Arkansas very much because my well, experience was is that they're out of their mind there, and based on the based on the actions of one one officer there. Evangelical Christians have got, for the most part have gotten to be associated with the establishment, sure. with the state, mm-hmm. with the power structures. Mm-hmm. Kings of the earth. And don't really look at individuals and the downtrodden. That's, they really don't relate. They relate to the, where the power is. Mm-hmm. 
But once you're in your experience like you had, you can look at things completely different. I know you didn't look otherwise before, but it just reinforced your views. But sure. for anyone who's on the other receiving end, it'll change how you look at things. And, I, and I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, going through Texas, I was driving, and I was speeding, and I got pulled over, and he gave me a ticket. And the guy was, uh, you know, very forceful but basically polite, and I was speeding. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I whine and complain about it a little bit. But had I not been going eight or nine miles over the speed limit, he wouldn't have stopped me. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this whole incident in Arkansas was a completely different yeah. thing. Yeah, you know, and I would expect we'll see more. We hear stories about a lot of the forces being given steroids and other kind of uppers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, the, and of course, obviously, we're not talking about all police officers. You know, a lot of you all are there. listening. Got to be one out there that's good. <laughs> someone. No, it's you know, we appreciate all you good folk out there, but it, mm-hmm. it's just going to be more common. Yeah, yeah. Would Please you, don't shoot me. Would you? <laughs> Next time you stop me. Would you just, I know we need to move on. Would you say a quick prayer for that trooper and whatever yeah, problems okay. he's dealing with? Yes, I will. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I just really, really quickly want to want to pray for uh, an Arkansas State Trooper, uh, Officer Craig, Lord. I just want to, uh, whatever's going on with him, Lord, uh, I ask that you you change his heart and change his mind, Lord. Uh, I ask that you do whatever's necessary to uh, to reach him and uh, help him with whatever's going on with him, Lord. Um, I I don't know what else to pray for other than you know please help him and and help the people that he's he's out there and and if my situation is not unique, the other people that he's stopping, Lord, uh, protect them, Lord. Uh, and I just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Um, you got a story to share? Sure. I'll do a quick one since okay. I've talked a whole bunch. Lay it on us. Yeah, here's a one very apropos to our mm-hmm. our thing. Cops search homes without search warrants. Uh, this is via the East Bay Express from some of my old stomping grounds there in Oakland, okay. California. On a gloomy recent morning in West Oakland, tenants at the David Gray Building, I know where that is, or off-ramp studios, as everyone who lives there calls it, stood in the hallways outside their lofts. They gathered around their doors in nervous clusters and spoke in hushed tones, wondering aloud whether they should head to work or stay and observe while two Oakland police officers, two building services code enforcers, a fire inspector, and three property management representatives entered all of their units one by one. Traditionally, the entire procedure would have required a search warrant, but on this day, the group of cops and city officials were operating under a little-known Oakland City program called SMART, Specialized Multi-Agency Response Team that some legal experts say may be unconstitutional. That's because the that's because they enter the people's homes without consent or a search warrant, and that's sort of the text of it there. Yeah. Hmm. So there wow, okay. Again, more and more common. Yeah, don't worry about it. Um, I've got a story. Worship the government. Uh, you know, we read a lot of stuff from Infowars, and mm-hmm. I've got stories from different ones. This one is from Infowars, mm-hmm. but it's from um, Paul Joseph Watson, a mm-hmm. gentleman who I believe is British, does a lot of their research work. Mm-hmm. You know, their 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 real investigative work. But he had an article that really caught my eye from somebody like himself. Is it the Taliban CIA opium thing no, recently? No. Okay. This is something, and I don't know where this gentleman stands spiritually, you know, as far as Christianity. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of truth in what he says here. Uh, he says this on InfoWars. He says, popular music is the Babylon system. Dumbed down, huh. uh, amoral, well, nihilistic dribble from the likes of Gaga and Katy Perry serves to keep the masses in a state of spiritual decay. Hmm. This is from PrisonPlanet.com. It has never been more important to those who have awakened from the slumber imposed upon them by popular culture that the establishment music industry now pumps out the most dumbed-down, monotonous, 
garbage which actually serves to induce depression and despair in those who are enlightened and aware while providing hypnotizing bread and circuses for those still transfixed by the Babylon system. You don't hear many people that aren't Christians talking about the Babylon yeah. system, but wow. he is. If the readers of this website about Infowars sat down and watched MTV for an hour, they'd probably come away feeling dazed, confused, and disgusted at the parade of sickness, idolatry, and worship of everything that's wrong with our society. Love of money, the evisceration of morality, the exaltation of postmodern nihilism, the attack on the family, the normalization of the bizarre, and the sick and the twisted. Mainstream popular culture is nothing more than a tool which the elite use to make us feel worthless, pathetic, powerless, and hopeless. They want us to believe that the most significant thing we can ever achieve in life is to look cool and garner the approval of our peers by wearing the uniform of whatever cult we are mandated to belong to. <laughs> and that we can only accomplish this by mimicking the retarded behavior of the people we see in music videos. This is why legions of young people, whatever color they are or background they come from, walk around trying to look like and imitate rappers who wear their pants halfway down their legs, can barely talk, and only live for getting smashed out of their skulls, and having meaningless random sex with women whom they objectify as instruments of carnal pleasure. Easily the biggest stumbling block in trying to educate people as to why uh, they are depressed, uh, leading increasingly insular and emotionally unstable, unhealthy lives with declining living standards, is dragging them away from the distractions that contribute to their downfall. The hmm. power of entertainment is an opiate of the masses that has never been stronger, and with the, mass, with the widespread rollout of 3D technology, the tools of hypnotism are only becoming more and more potent. A London Guardian report entitled Lady Gaga in the New World Order gives serious credence to a website that not only discusses how popular music is used to keep people downtrodden and distracted, but how it is replete with messages and symbolism bragging about how the elite are using entertainment to keep the masses enslaved. The Vigilant Citizen... Has a good claim to Very be. Very interesting website, by the way. Really? Yeah. I, I was just newly introduced to it. Mm -hmm. Has a good claim to be the world's most distinctive music critic. On his website, vigilantcitizen.com, he describes himself as a graduate in communications and politics and a producer for some fairly well known urban artists. He has spent five years researching theosophy, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, the Bavarian Illuminati, uh, and Western occultism. All of these interests converge in his insanely detailed analysis of the symbolism of pop videos and lyrics. Mm -hmm. Thus, Pink's MTV uh, Awards mimics performance mimics a Masonic initiation. Jay-Z's Run This Town trumpets the coming of a new world order. And the video for Black Eyed Peas' Emma Be Rockin' uh, That Body advances the transhumanist and police state agenda. What's surprising is the methodical, matter-of-fact, occasionally humorous tone of his essays. He does not write like a swivel-eyed loon rambling about <laughs> Obamianism. Uh, although, uh, let's see here, uh, to those who don't study occult symbolism, he concedes uh, it might all seem totally far-fetched and ridiculous. But for those in the know, I was simply stating the obvious. His examinations are certainly exhaustive. Scrolling down his illustrated post, you may find yourself thinking, say, Lady Gaga really does often cover up one eye. And a lot of pop stars do pretend to be robots. And that's all 
important symbolism there. Mm-hmm. Although the vigilant citizen insists he is neither political conservative nor religious fundamentalist, he is heir to such off uh, 60s pop critics. Uh, let me skip down here. Uh, talked, talking about uh, Reverend David A. Nobel, author of Communism, Hypnotism, and the Beatles, and Gary Allen, who theorized that the post-Rubber Soul Beatles material was so technically sophisticated that it must have been put together by behavioral scientists at a think tank. Hmm. Left-wing thinkers at the time had, had their own take on pop as mind control. Peter Watkins' 1967 movie Privilege star, uh, starred Manfred Mann's Paul Jones, which, which was a lead singer, mm-hmm. uh, as a puppet of the state pacifying the populace with catchy patriotic tunes. In such analysis, the villains uh, may change, but the mechanisms stay the same. The fact that the Guardian writer seriously discusses how popular music is littered with elitist symbolism without sneering the whole thing off as conspiranoid delusion is an example of how abundantly uh, clear this process is becoming. So, uh, anyway, I, there's there's a little more that goes on here. Um, it says in one of the essays, Gaga's habit of covering one eye is explained as a rejection of God uh, and her induction as a Luciferian priestess. Hmm. Um, and Christina Aguilera's uh, copies the symbolism of humans as soulless robots. So, uh, anyway, I thought it was a very, very interesting system, but he compares it to the Babylon system and says that there are a few groups out there who are sort of waking up to what's going on to this. So There you go. Anyway, no, that took a while. Good. Lay on something for us. But, you know, that that gentleman, I've never known anything as far as spiritual that he yeah. talked about directly. Mm-hmm. But he put a lot of the pieces together, particularly in the early part of that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting listening to that. You could almost take that and slap like some other uh, like some other well-known evangelical commentator on that thing, and it would... Read, you wouldn't know the difference. Yeah, yeah. It would read almost the same. Right, except it probably a better, more eloquent and better English. Next story. <laughs> All right, well... Uh, I've got one really long one, which we will not enter into. The, do we want to okay. hear about how Coast Guard bans reporters from the oil cleanup sites, or do we want to hear about the market forecast that says take cover? First one. First one? Okay, it's it's real short again. Okay. Uh, Coast Guard bans reporters from oil cleanup sites. Uh, and flashback to a – I'll actually flashback to one thing that we checked out a couple weeks ago, uh, the U.S. Coast Guard threatening CBS News crews with arrest. Remember we talked mm-hmm. about that? Uh, and then uh, – and then the Coast Guard said that they were acting under authority of BP. Quote, this is BP rules and not ours. Remember mm-hmm. that? Anyway, this is via the Ross story. Okay. Journalists who come too close to oil spill cleanup efforts without permission could find themselves facing a $40,000 fine and even one to five years in prison under a new rule instituted by the Coast Guard late last week. It's a move that outraged observers that that outraged observers have decried as an attack on the First Amendment rights. And CNN's Anderson Cooper describes the new rules as making it very easy to hide incompetence or failure. Gee, you think? Hmm. Uh, the Coast Guard order states that vessels must not, must not come within 20 meters of booming operations, boom or oil spill response operations under penalty of law. But since oil spill response operations apparently covers much of the cleanup efforts on the beaches, CNN's Anderson Cooper describes the ruling as banning reporters from anywhere we need to be. A willful violation of the new rule could result in a Class D felony charge, which carries a penalty of one to five years in prison under federal law. That's all I have for that. Wow. You know, I wonder, because there's been a lot of reports that, 
you know, the government is stopping other people from getting involved and stopping, you know, the damage and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Whether it's right or wrong, is, is it likely that it's just simply for legal issues, that if they're seen as interfering with BP, that in court that could impede their damages against BP? The BP could say, well, you got in our way by doing this other kind of stuff. Who cares? Why on earth? Why on earth is the is the government making a $40,000 fine for going up and interviewing people. This the whole rule is so vague. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, I mean, right. it, it could only come from one place, you know, and that is uh, people's uh, a certain oil companies whose initials are very close to uh, A Q. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's still gushing. It's still getting worse. Now it's hit flo- um, Texas mm-hmm. uh, as the latest, and I guess. Few weeks it'll hit Miami. I think I heard. Yeah, well, and that's a particularly scary thought because once it makes makes its way around the Horn of Florida, it gets caught up in the Eastern Atlantic Gulf Stream or Eastern Atlantic mm-hmm. Gulf Stream and brings it right on up the other side of Florida, Georgia, Carolinas, New York. Mm-hmm. What about Nashville? Will they be seeing any? No, soon? we'll probably be okay. We have our own floods to deal with. We've got, we've got. It's funny. We we do have yeah. quite a bit of water to deal with. Somebody else we have to deal with is Merv. Who can tell everyone how to contact us here at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Doctor Future and Tom Bionic at Doctor Future at futurequake.com. That's D R F U T U R E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go, but right, you know, we need to do some more shows just all week, just news. Yeah, that'd be cool. News we scoot over. I've got a stack of news stories that were very important that we couldn't cover. Yeah, maybe maybe we do that next week. Maybe we, we need to, or in at least a couple weeks, yeah. shoehorn that in and yeah. do it and do that more frequently. There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you. Come back again for our next great guest next week. Until then, we hope your future is bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.